0: I hate you and uh, everything you say about yourself is false and I deny the reality of any of your feelings or interests.
1: This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that can't be complained about by my friend and yours, host of this show, John Siracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Wednesday, December 5th, 2012. This is our 97th episode, closing in on The Inevitable. I'd like to say thanks very much to our sponsors Hover Prop and Go Squarespace and Shutterstock.com You'll find over 20 million stock photos vectors, illustrations, and video clips over at Shutterstock Find the perfect image for the website that you're building, for the iOS app for the tote bag you're printing whatever it is They don't uh, nickel and dime you They give you one price You get the high resolution You You get the full Monty as they say you can go there. You can sign up for a free browse account at Shutterstock.com. You don't need to give them a credit card. When you find the images you'd like to purchase, you use the offer code DANSENTME12, number 12. You get 30% off any package you put together over there. So please go and check them out at Shutterstock.com. Finally, we want to mention IglooSoftware.com is our bandwidth sponsor for December. These guys let you uh, work digitally. It means you can give updates and have discussions and share files with your team. All in one place. Get started at igloosoftware.com slash 5 by 5 How are you today, John?
0: I'm doing fine. We got a follow-up today.
1: We have follow-up and then we have, uh, we're going to have an opportunity to ask you some questions that were a couple from me, but most of them submitted from our listeners uh, over uh, Twitter. Because this is a, a Q&A episode, if you will. The long uh, anticipated Q&A episode.
0: Yeah, I think it was like, what, uh, episode 95 or something like that when I said, when uh, we announced the end of the show, and I said one of the episodes was going to be a Q&A episode, but it wouldn't tell you which one it would be, mostly because I didn't know. Uh, and this week we're recording early because you're traveling right. on our usual day, so this is a perfect time to do it because, you know, we only had, but the last show was on Friday and now it's Wednesday, so I don't have the normal amount of time to collect and prepare a topic for the show, so this is the perfect time to do a Q&A show and as it is like it, I said it for the
1: record it says this is not a a stump John kind of show these questions that are not geared at throwing you you know things that you will you'll have to be put on the spot to answer from like a technological knowledge-based standpoint there are, there are questions about you the man
0: the no, man I don't know. They're, they're whatever anyone wants to ask but if I don't know I'm just gonna say I don't know and that'll be a boring question and we'll just you know I won't ask anything like that move on they don't have to be about they can be about anything ask me anything. Because I can always simply not answer.
1: And I would like to say thanks very much to my producer, Hattie Cook, for uh, helping curate your favorite word, curate and cull the list of uh, questions. So Many, many people responded when I put it out there on Twitter. And she helped, picked, uh, helped me pick uh, some of the very, very best questions. So get ready, John.
0: I hope next year, like the word of the year, will be curing, like curing meats. <laughs> because cured meats are much better than curated things. <laughs> that's that's going to be the word of the year. Yeah. And, and i, by feel, the way, it, I can feel it. i feel it and this show like this this is supposed to be questions from uh, the audience from the chat room from people on twitter people who email you or whatever this does not count as the as you asking me questions so i said there also might be a show where i say all right dan now it's time for you to ask me stuff and yes. that this this is not that show so don't think you're getting just because you're like sneaking in a few of your own questions doesn't mean you get out well how about of, uh, this
1: i will remove my own questions these will be
0: 100% crowdsourced questions done but, it's up, that's up to you if you want to reserve them for if if you, you may be called upon to do this. You may not be. Maybe we'll never have that show. We don't know. Uh, so use your own judgment. All right. But first we have to do follow up, of course. Uh, and we do have a, a reasonable size chunk of that from last week. So I guess we'll start uh, with some more about chip stuff and Intel and AMD and ARM and all that that has been going on for the past few shows. This first bit is an anonymous bit of feedback from someone who calls himself Scott Anonymous. Scott, if you want to be anonymous, you shouldn't you shouldn't put your name Scott in there, if that's your <laughs> not, real name. Not full anonymity. Right. Half. He says that he works at Intel and that uh, they call it taping out, not taping in. So now we have a battle of the anonymous sources. One- says he works at Intel and they call it taping out. And the other one is just merely anonymous and says they call it taping in. So I don't know. Maybe you anonymous people should find each other in the Intel lunchroom or wherever <laughs> you might want to meet and hash it out. Because I don't know what to think. I'm just going by it based on your feedback. So so there you have it. He says they call it taping out. Uh, Peter Evans wrote in about the term taping out, which on the last show I, I said, I'm not sure what the origin of that term is, but I imagine it had something to do with real physical tape. My guess was that it had to do with like laying down pieces of tape to lay out where like the traces might go in the ancient mists of time. But that's apparently wrong. So Peter Evans, uh, gave me some history here. He says, uh, historically this referred to actually shipping a magnetic tape containing the files on it for making the photo, photolithography graphs. No photolithography masks mm. uh, to the family. So like a magnetic tape, like, you know, as a storage medium for digital data. Uh, And that's what taping out means. And then he says that the file format for this tape was uh, something called GDS, which is an unbelievably arcane relic of the 1970s and is gradually being replaced throughout the industry, though it's taking far too long. Uh, So He says nowadays they usually securely email or FTP the files. I love that's the modern version, email or FTP. Those are the two modern choices instead of sending a tape over. I would say that both email and FTP are also ancient things that should be you know, relegated to the dustbin of digital history, particularly FTP, but really like if you're Intel and you have like the the next design for your uh you know next super duper processor, do you want to email it like oh it's a secure email we put it in a password protected zip file and we send it through Gmail <laughs> or we'll use FTP with uh with clear text passwords. I'm sure that's great. Anyway, uh, so there you have it, taping out even though they may or may not actually use tapes these days. That's what it refers to. Is taking putting your data on a tape and sending it out to the fab uh on I think the last show we were talking about the possibility of i think it was apple contracting out to uh, tsmc to do their fabbing mm-hmm. and how there was rumors about that and how part of one of the stories i was reading about that deal said that tsmc would have to get used to the way apple likes to fund uh how to financially structure these type of deals where they do them where like apple uh buys the equipment upfront for the people and then they get paid back in the chips that they manufacture and the reason, most of the reason I was confused by this is because, well, A, I don't know what what the financial reason is behind this arrangement, but B, the article phrased it as uh, TSMC would have to get used to this. Like, oh, well, normally we wouldn't do stuff like this, but Apple wants this strange sort of deal. And it seems like, why would, why would TSMC object to someone structuring the deal this way? Is it worse for them? Uh, so I'm still not entirely sure on it, but Trevor Hardy wrote in to explain uh, why deals might be structured this way. And it, it makes perfect sense. Uh, in terms of the the financials, doesn't make sense to me in terms of that article uh, saying why uh, someone might object to this. But uh, the gist of it is that doing semiconductor manufacturing has very, very large upfront purchase costs. Like to build a fab at any particular feature size costs literally billions of dollars. Just, you know, you have to just put that money out front before you get the first chip off the thing. So you just need a huge amount of capital that's liquid that you can put down or, you know, get a loan or whatever, and you need to build the thing. And then finally, when the thing is built, presuming you built the right thing at the right time and the right place and you can get customers, then finally you can start making money off of it. So if you are, say, a low margin in the semiconductor manufacturing business, you might not have multiple billions of dollars hanging around, or you might not want to take out the kind of big loan, whereas Apple comes in with its you know 40% profit margins and uh, multiple billions of dollars in the bank. And they can say, look, I know you don't want to take the financial risk to build this fab or whatever, We'll put the money up front. We'll give you this money. You build the fab and then you'll pay it back to us by, you know, making our, you know, chips or whatever your financial arrangement. is. So like they'll front the money for you. And I'm sure Apple extracts, you know, lower profit margins for the semiconductor manufacturer based on that or whatever. So maybe that's why they don't like the deal. Uh, but anyway, that's, uh, and Apple does that with lots of other manufacturers, not just semiconductors. Like they do the thing, you know, we'll buy them. We'll put the uh, expenditures up front to buy these metal machining tools or whatever to do these precise machining of aluminum and stuff and then we'll buy you the tools you put them in your factory and you turn them out Uh, so anyway this is all uh speculative because no such deal has yet taken place but this is trevor hardy's explanation of uh why uh the deal might be arranged this way and of course you know why if apple has money why don't they just do it themselves well presumably the fab uh the people who run the fab have expertise in manufacturing you know apple just has the money and they'll give it to those guys and say oh they know you know, how to build their fabs and how to run them and stuff like that, and we'll just front the money for them. Uh, Jared Williams wrote in to talk about AMD and uh, how uh, we talked about, you know, what if Apple bought AMD, what would they get out of right. it? Would it be a good idea or a bad idea? said, if anyone buys AMD, uh, AMD has to renegotiate its cross-license agreement with Intel. Uh, and this is, uh, I'm assuming Jared learned this from the exact same place that I learned it, uh, which is the Ann Tech podcast. I put a link to it in the show notes because it's a good one to listen to. Lots of great technical info. I mean, if you don't like hearing about, if you think I went into too much detail on the chip stuff, you probably won't like this podcast, but if you think I didn't go into enough detail, you will like this podcast. <laughs> right. Uh, and so I listened to the, uh, one of the recent episodes where they talked about AMD uh, and I've, so, uh, AMD and Intel have a cross-license agreement. You know, lots of companies have these where they get into some sort of patent dispute or intellectual property dispute, and they come to an agreement. They say, okay, you can use our intellectual property, and we can use yours, some limited subsets or whatever, and then we won't sue each other, or whatever. We'll go forward. But part of the deal is apparently, if either company gets bought by anybody, if Intel changes ownership or if AMD changes ownership, that deal is off and has to be renegotiated, or not, or whatever. You know, but that that deal is null and void, and. You know, so if anyone buys AMD, you know, you're not automatically getting, for example, the ability to make x86 processors because your agreement with Intel to let you do that is gone. And now you have to renegotiate it. And similarly, if AMD or Intel gets bought, Intel's ability, I'm, I'm assuming, and the Anatech Podtec, uh, podcast assumes as well, uh, that Intel's ability to use x86-64, the 64-bit uh, instruction set extension invented by AMD and used in all of Intel's modern desktop processors and, and laptop processors. Uh, Intel needs that to, to be part of its business. So it's not like if someone buys it, all bets are off, and then, you know, tough luck. If someone buys either company, those the two parties are going to renegotiate because they need each other. Like, they each, they each have something the other person wants. Intel is no good without the ability to make x86-64, and AMD is probably no good without the ability to make x86 chips. So they both have... All sorts of super done patents, I'm sure, and plus other intellectual property based on the stuff they've invented. But that's one more monkey wrench in the possible theories about someone buying AMD. Uh, and by the way, if you listen to that uh, uh, Antech podcast about AMD, they paint a pretty dire picture of where AMD is. Like they've already sold off all the things they can sell off to, to make quick to make a quick buck. They're not well positioned in the market and they're running out of money fast and it doesn't look like their pipeline has any blockbuster products they're going to pull them up out of it. So it was a pretty depressing podcast if you're hopeful for the future of AMD. Um, And then last week talked about uh, Intel's transactional memory features that they've put into Haswell and presumably all future chips, but we'll see. And someone with the funny name Guy Inglage writes in to tell me that (laughs) transactional memory is probably more useful in the kernel than in user space code uh so like the kernel maintains lots of shared resources like the unified buffer cache uh where it you know caches access to files and other things like that uh in memory and lots of other processes need to manipulate that that cache because they all you know go into kernel space and do that in uh years ago uh as Guy points out uh mac os 10 used to have just one big giant lock around anything if you go and do anything with like the, the 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 buffer cache you go in there you grab one big lock and everyone else is blocked out even if they weren't even going to touch anywhere near where you're going to touch and that's sort of you know uh coarse grained locking it's not particularly good for concurrency because you say oh well, you know there's five processes that want to screw with this thing and they're really not going to overlap at all but if we have this coarse grained locking only one of them can do it at a time. So. Mac OS X has been making finer grain locking over time to say, okay, well, these guys really aren't going to conflict with each other. We can have these smaller locks onto these smaller areas and then they can both go at the same time. And that's great, especially multi-core CPUs. But with transactional memory, uh, in theory, you could rewrite this parts of the kernel to use uh, the hardware transactional memory features and say, okay, everyone just go at once. And if any of you actually have a collision, then yeah, you'll get rolled back and, and have to do locking stuff or whatever. But in the, in the hopefully more common case where there are no collisions... No one has to grab any locks at all. Like you know, sixteen virtual cores can be having processes running that are messing with this part of the kernel. So, uh, so we'll see. I mean, like lots of speculative hardware features, they think will be good for some theoretical kinds of workloads. Uh, you have to. There's two things. One, you have to see how many real world workloads actually conform to this theoretical thing that will be better. And two, you have to get people to actually rewrite their software to take advantage of your cool new features. Or tweak your software or do something or at least recompile it, you know, depending on how high the bar is. So we'll see how where that goes. Oh, and he also says that he uh, grew up on Blue Peter in England and he loved that show. Mm-hmm. Many Blue Peter fans writing in. And in fact, this next bit of follow up from David Myers is about Blue Peter, beginning, <laughs> beginning the Blue Peter section of the follow-up. Try to trim this down. Uh, so he says that despite all our laughing, he says sniggering about the name blue Peter it's actually named after the maritime signaling flag representing the letter P I put a link in the show notes to Wikipedia page of international maritime signal flags uh, he says when flown in the harbor it means all persons should report on board as the vessel is about to proceed to sea which is the show creators uh, way of saying uh, program is like a ship setting out on a voyage having new adventures and discovering new things so it's like everybody aboard the boat and by the way David Myers in that paragraph spelled harbor with an O-U-R at Mm. the end and program with an E at the end, proving that he is a bona fide (laughs) person from across the pond. (laughs) Right. That's all you need to do to prove that to
1: us.
0: (laughs) Just just put an O-U-R. Because who else would do that? No
1: one. Yeah.
0: Uh, And uh, he also provided a link to the Blue Peter FAQ for people who want to know more about Blue Peter. Uh, he says, having grown up in the 60s in the UK with only a couple of channels on TV and only one hour per day of children's television, Blue Peter was a major influence on the formative years uh, of many in my generation. And I can attest from the feedback that that is true. Many people wrote in simply to say that they watched Blue Peter and they loved it as a kid. So there you go. It's like the uh, the British Sesame Street. <laughs> I still didn't actually go to YouTube and like try to look up an episode to see what it was like. So I just like imagining what it's like in my head and not actually knowing. Uh okay, Actually that was the end of the Blue Peter section. Uh, a little bit about the Wii U from someone named Christopher, whose last name I could not find. He provided a link to a YouTube show channel thing, whatever called the way Games work. Uh, I watched a little bit of it, and it looked like it was pretty good. This is about how the Wii U gamepad works. It talks about capacitive touchscreens and gyroscopes, and it's not particularly techy, but it's you know if you want sort of a fun high level overview of how the stuff inside the gamepad works. You should check it out. It's in the show notes. Two software update things: one new, one old. Uh, the first one is I wanted to mention that the new version of BBEdit is out, even though they're not sponsoring this episode. As yes, far as they, I know. well
1: they have they have in the past. So uh, you know, even even if they hadn't, we're not going to not talk about it. That's right. Uh,
0: and this is noteworthy because uh, this is version BBEdit 10.5. It's a free update for people who own BBEdit 10, I believe. Uh, And it includes retina support, which means that if you have a Mac with a retina screen, everything is rendered at the higher resolution. And that doesn't sound like such a big deal. So what? Lots of apps are updated for retina support. It's kind of a big deal because BBEdit, depending on your definition of the term, is pretty much a Carbon application. Carbon is the legacy uh, Mac API that was uh, created to allow people who had classic macOS applications to more easily port them to macOS 10. And it became legacy when Apple decided that they're not going to provide a 64-bit version of Carbon. So they would continue to support Carbon. Carbon apps would continue to run. But if you wanted your app to be 64-bit, it couldn't be Carbon, This despite the fact that they'd already done a substantial portion of the work to get 64-bit Carbon working. So it wasn't a technical problem. It was more of a political one. It said, look, uh, Cocoa is the future. All your apps should be written in Cocoa going forward. Uh, we're, you know, we're cutting off. Uh, carbon and that happened many years ago things like photoshop have since ported themselves to, to coco the real difficulty is figuring out what do you mean but what's a Cocoa app and what's a carbon app like if you look at almost any modern applica- mac application you'll see that they link to the carbon framework and the Cocoa frameworks because even Cocoa applications need to call into things that you know could arguably be defined as carbon apis and most modern carbon apps also link to the Cocoa frameworks and so like you know is it is it a Cocoa app uh, you know if it you know is an ns application and runs through that type of loop is it a carbon app because it uses carbon events so you know it, there's lots of different ways you can define it but the bottom line is the bb edit is an application that's been around for ages for what is it, 30 years 20 years i forget they had a recent anniversary and i forget how many years it is but this application was was originally distributed on floppy disk to let you know how, how old it is wow and so it's been continuously developed for all those years uh And so obviously, you know, you you can't really say, well, why do you guys have a carbon code base? Well, you know, the app was shipped in like 1992. Like there was no nothing back then. It was a different world. And so this is still the same application, more or less, continuously developed. And they managed to find a way somehow through black magic to make their application uh, support uh, retina displays. Does that mean they converted the application to Cocoa? Does that mean they found a way to draw on retina displays with carbon? I don't know the technical details. Someday if you have Rich Siegel on one of your interview shows, you can ask him. Yeah, and definitely going to ask him about it. People who time. asked me about that, I directed them to Rich. Uh, he can reveal his secrets or not. Uh, but the point is, it's real, it's shipping, it's even in the Mac App Store, I believe. Uh, the old version certainly were and I assume this one will be as well. Uh, I don't even have a retina screen. Uh, I'm a BBETA beta tester, so I've been running it for a while, but... Uh, it's not like the only feature of BBEdit 10.5 is retina support. It also has a tremendous amount of new features, as all new versions of BBEdit do. I put a link into the typically copious bare bones release notes. That's the name of the company. It's not saying that the release notes are bare bones. In fact, quite the opposite. So if you want to see all the new features that are in there, even if you don't have a retina screen, uh, check it out. Like I said, it's free update for anyone who has the most recent major version of BBEdit. Uh, finally, on uh, software notes, this is a question. This is kind of like getting into the QA show a little early, but not really. From Don Liebs or Don Libes from a long time ago, he said that uh, many episodes ago I talked about Quicken and my inability to run it. I think it was like an inability to run on Lion or maybe it was the inability to run on a mountain lion or something like that. Remember when Quicken wouldn't run on Modern Macs? Maybe it's because they didn't have an x86 port and Lion dropped the oh, uh, yeah. Rosetta.
1: Yeah, so there was that weird in-between time.
0: Yeah. And I, I said like, okay, well, you know, I could run it in, you know, a virtual machine running Snow Leopard or something, or I could keep a machine and not upgrade it to Lion and run it there. And, uh, you know, or I could, you know, look for other things. People like, oh, well, you know, if you're looking for other software applications, here's a bunch of suggestions. And if you pick one, tell us what you picked on the air. So Don is asking, whatever happened with that? What did you do? Did you uh, change to use a different application? Or did you stop using Quick and Whatever. Uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned this on past shows, but it's figure it's worth following up on now before the show ends. What I ended up doing was apparently waiting long enough and then uh, Intuit came out a ver- with a version of Quicken for the Mac that ran online and I just bought that. It was like a $13 upgrade or whatever it was. So I did not get off of Quicken. I'm still using Quicken. It's Quicken for Mac 2007, which tells you the vintage of this program, but it does run on modern Macs. At least it ran online. I, it still runs at Mountain Lion. Like I launched it the other day in Mountain Lion. Maybe there's some features that don't work in Mountain Lion or some features are buggy. I don't know. We, I'm a very limited user of Quicken. We just basically use it to track a bunch of numbers, uh, not using any of the fancy online stuff or any of the other features. So, so there you have it, the depressing, non-exciting conclusion to my quest for a uh, finance program. I'm still using Quicken 2007. All right. And the final section of follow up before we get to the QA okay. is going to be all about the uh, geek culture stuff. Mm, about then, time, let's just say
1: that the outpouring of responses about that episode has been more that I feel than any, any episode that you've done, maybe with the exception of your Steve Jobs, Isaacson book uh, episode.
0: Yeah, I expected to get a whole bunch of uh, hate mail and sort of true to form, like as soon as the show was over and, you know, stopped recording and I quit Skype, like the first email to arrive was uh, not complimentary. And I'm like, all right, here it comes. But really, that was like uh, the exception. And most of the feedback was positive. And I always kind of feel like uh, for like blog posts or podcasts and stuff like that, there's kind of cheating when you when you do a topic that people have an emotional connection to, and they're like, oh, that that was great. Like the Steve Jobs show, why do people like that? Is it because I, I was particularly insightful or articulate? No, it's just that people have an emotional connection to Steve Jobs. So when you talk about it, it triggers the emotions in them, and they'd say, oh, that was a great podcast. It really wasn't. I don't think it was any greater or better than most. You know, I think other podcasts I did on less emotionally resonant topics were more interesting, more insightful, better structured, more coherent, blah, blah, blah. But people connect to it emotionally and they say, oh, that was the one that I really liked. And so I see that a lot with blog posts where someone write a blog post about something and it's like, uh, was this a, an example of great writing or was it just writing about a topic that you have an emotional connection to? Like, maybe I'm crazy for trying to separate those two, but I always, you know, you know what my uh, my usual modus operandi is, is to reject any compliments and explain why they're not valid. And that happened again with this one because I felt like I, when I listened back to it, I'm like, I kind of got the point across. I was trying to get across, but really, was this, was it a good episode? Eh, you know. But anyway, I thank everyone for the feedback. Uh, I did want to talk about it. Uh, I'm glad that people enjoyed it. and I'm, I'm not trying to invalidate your enjoyment of it. I'm just being my normal hypercritical self. What else can I be? Uh, but I do have some follow-up on that episode. I'll get back onto this... Uh, self-analysis in a little bit. First part is uh, a link that a couple of people sent me, a link that I actually read, but I didn't manage to get into the show notes. I'd read it a while ago. I think back when it was published. I think it's from like this summer. It's by John Scalzi, who is a famous science fiction author. I have not read any of his books, but he's still famous. Still, Even if you have not read That's, it, he still that, qualifies. I don't read that many science, science fiction books, believe it or not,
1: Dan. <laughs> uh, I would think you'd be spending almost all of your free time not to preparing for the show reading and rereading ender's game i have never read that book never i don't know if it would hold up for you anymore
0: i think it's actually on one of my i think i bought the ebook of it thinking maybe i should read it but I don't. you should that. read it but yeah all right uh so the title of this article by john Scalzi is who gets to be a geek anyone who wants to be which sums up the last show i put it in the show it's only for completeness I think the title says it all. Sometimes you don't have to write the body of the thing. It's who gets to be? Question mark. Answer. Anyone who wants to be. Okay, no body of this article is required. Oh, you need more explanation? Then read on. Uh, So he said it better earlier. So there you have it. Uh, Some more feedback from people talking about, uh, you know, misogynists and stuff like that. And it made me think of another point that I should have put into the previous show. It's about what you are versus what you do. This is another one of those things like that your that your mother tells you when you're little that adults should still remember because it's valid advice. Lots of the people who are giving feedback and are writing back and forth to each other on the web about the fake geek girl issue fall into this trap. I did it myself, I'm sure, in in the previous podcast of calling someone a misogynist. You've surely heard that. Like the guy who was I read all that stuff from was it Tony Harris or something, some comic book artist who I didn't know who wrote that terrible thing, right? That was kind of the, the, the basis of the article that I was uh, riffing on in, in the previous show. You know, well, clearly he's a misogynist, right? I mean, just read what he wrote. Uh, I think it's not particularly useful to talk about people in that way, like condemning... It's better. It's better to condemn their actions than to say they are something. Because if you say someone is something, you are a misogynist. Well, like, how can someone change what they are, right? But if you say, that thing you wrote you know, is misogynistic, right? Or that thing that you said. Like if you can condemn their actions, people can change their actions. Like, okay, well, going forward, I will not make that action, right? But if you say, oh no, no, you are a misogynist, well then how can you ever change that, right? Once you once you label somebody as what they are, you're putting you're painting you're you're uh backing them into a corner, basically. Because they will they will lash out and be defensive because you you know, you are labeling me as what I am, rather than saying that thing that you did was bad, uh, or, you know, sexist or racist or whatever you want to pick because they can say okay well i just won't do that thing anymore i agree with you that was that thing i did was bad i will change my ways then going forward i will not do that thing because if you label them as a misogynist then everything they do from then on it's like well i'll just regard everything he does because he's a misogynist well if he if he does not act in that way going forward then he's not you know so i'm over i'm talking around in circles on this but basically i I i'm a big proponent of the idea of condemning things that people do and say and their actions and policies and stuff rather than labeling them because once you label somebody and it ends constructive discourse all right um and as for the topic of that last show about you know fakey girls and misogyny and all that stuff i'm really surprised i didn't get any feedback condemning me for pitching myself such a softball like (laughs) no wait (laughs) what do you what do you mean (laughs) <laughs> my my bold stand against misogyny on you know, the next show, you're going to talk about how I feel about killing puppies and stealing from the elderly. Like, it's, you know, it's such a softball. Like, what am I going to do? I'm going to be I'm going to be for it. It's going to be pro misogyny. Like, it's really it's. But you're uh, saying it, things, it was
1: it was too, it was too easy for you to take the side that you took.
0: I I mean, I just thought it needed to be said and it was kind of obvious, but it's not like, it's not, you know, it's not a controversial issue. And in in hindsight, that's probably why I didn't get a lot of hate mail about it. It's because like, what am I, you know, are the people who are pro misogyny going to write me and tell me actually you're wrong and we should really hate all women. Like I I guess maybe those people are out there, but they're not listening to the show. Right. But it really was, it was a softball. Like I'm not, I'm not (laughs) tackling a, a, a topic where I really have to think hard about what the, the answer is there. Right. Uh, but there are much more complex facets to this. And a lot of people did bring up the more complex things. One of them is the, uh, can I say D-I-C-K in the show and we won't get. Do uh, it. Do it. Uh, we don't get to get believe like I don't Do know. it. Do it. Could be, it, could, it could be the short version of some person's name whose mother name. That's right. Anyway. Do it. Uh, so the Penny Arcade Dick Wolves controversy, are you familiar with this? Okay, I, I need this explained to me because other people
1: have made reference to this. I don't know what it is, and I'm, I'm, please explain this.
0: Yeah, people not in Penny Arcade circles might not know what this is. This is this different though. from Rape Wolf? It's the same thing. Okay. Uh, so I put links in the show notes to this topic. One is an article by all, un, all lowercase Arthur-IGN, whose real name I could not find. Uh, and the title of, of his thing uh, is On Dick Wolves Ethics and Why I'm Not Attending PAX East. And it is kind of a personal explanation of how this issue uh, made him decide not to attend PAX East. Uh, and then he linked to, and I also put in the show notes, uh, I link on a site called debacle.tumblr.com, which is the pratfall of Penny Arcade, a timeline. It is a timeline, a tr- trying to be a dispassionate timeline of all the events that happened in this controversy. So you want if you want to see either... Someone's reaction to it in summary, or just like a timeline of like this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. You can read both of those. Now, I don't want to get into this issue mostly because it is a complex issue and it's not where someplace where I can say, oh, party A is totally right and the other side is totally wrong, or vice versa. So there are nuances on both sides of this. Uh I I think for the people who ask me, like, what do you think about this issue or whatever? My best answer to it is a blog post that I wrote on my blog that never gets posted to. But I wrote this blog post uh, many months before the Dick Bowles controversy erupted. Right I, When I read it, I'm like, I must have written this afterwards because this must have been like my way of like responding to the Dick Bowles thing without addressing it directly. But then I looked at the dates. And I'm like, no, this was months before the Dick Bowles thing. Uh, but I think it is entirely relevant and related. So if you want to see sort of a somewhat oblique answer to this entire controversy or where I've come down on it, Uh, You can read this post. It's called No Movie for Old Men. Uh, It's at my hypercritical.co website, which was previously uh, syracusa.tumblr.com. They'll both redirect to each other. Uh, And that will give you an answer to the question of what do you think of that big controversy? Like I I said, I don't want to talk about it because it's not, it's a type of thing where both, uh, you know, I don't, I can say both sides are equally wrong and both sides are equally right because they're not, there is, there is an imbalance there. Here's my summary for people who want to hear something. I think the Penny Arcade guys are well-intentioned, but did some very, that reacted very poorly. Again, that's what I'm talking about, you know, saying what they did and what, eh, versus what they are. I don't think they are any kind of horrible human beings. I think all their motivations are good, but I think a lot of their actions were not good. Uh, And on the other side, I think there was a lack of understanding about you know why the penny arcade guys had such bad reactions because again not not understanding to excuse it but understanding because if you understand why it is that they're acting that way you're better able to help them alter their behavior versus just trying to condemn them so it was just a bad situation all around and there were no winners in this and uh you can read all about it if you want to i know they didn't explain it to you dan but if you're actually interested if you i will
1: have to to research that's
0: all right you will get it and and so this is this is how wimpy i am on this show because i don't think like you know the reason I picked up the softball topic last time is because I'm like, you know, it needs to be talked about. And part of it was because I think it should be such a softball. And I couldn't stand seeing this debate around it because it's like, this is cut and dried, you know, simple, no real controversy. We should be clear on this fake geek girl thing. It's ridiculous. And that I was totally willing to take a stand on uh, because it's sort of, you know, a criticism of geek culture, which this podcast is about. The nuanced issues I would rather have people sort out on their own and not try to. Come down with like, nope, this is the way it is on that particular issue. Sorry if you're disappointed by that. But this is, in the end, not really a podcast about. uh, It's a podcast about whatever you want it to be about. I know, but this is what I want it to be about. All right. uh, So another link that a bunch of people sent me that I thought was interesting. This one, I think, was the first person to send it to me. And I'm reading his name because he provided a pronunciation. Yay. Uh, Cameron (laughs) Higby Nakan. Or or Nakan. Nakan. It is entitled Five Geek Social Fallacies. It is by Michael, oh, another guy with a hyphenated last name, Suleban Wilson, maybe. Uh, It is from 2003, so ancient in internet time, and yet I had never seen it before today. Uh, And these social fallacies, they're they're abbreviated in the article, GSF number one, two, three, four, five, so Geek Social Fallacy number one. Uh, Geek Social Fallacy number one, I think, is the most relevant to the previous discussion. Uh, Here's the definition from the article. In its pathological form, GSF 1 prevents its carrier from participating in or tolerating the exclusion of anyone from anything, be it a party, comic book store, or web forum, no matter how obnoxious, offensive, or aromatic the perspective excluding may be. Uh, so, this is kind of like rec- you know, GSF 1 is this, you know, the fallacy that all ostracizers are evil and that if you exclude anyone from anything, it's terrible. And I think people were sending me this link because. Th- as a reaction to me saying that geek culture is at its best as a judgment free zone and it's supposed to be inclusive and you shouldn't be excluding other people. Uh, I don't think that the points in this thing and the points I made at the past show are opposed at all because there's quite a range between being best friends with somebody and being actively hostile to them and denying them the right to even self identify as the thing that you identify at. Right. That's what I was railing against. You can't tell someone they can't call themselves a geek or are faking or just a terrible person. Right. That's that's what you can't do. It doesn't mean you have to be their best friend and hang out with them every day. Like there's, there's no. And so th- this this uh, geek social fallacy, number one thing is like, not only can you not be a terrible person to them and deny them their own basic rights of self-identification and say they don't they can't possibly belong to your group, but you have to like invite them to all your birthday parties. And that's totally not what I'm saying. Like there's a huge range. All I'm saying is don't be a terrible person to the other people and don't deny them their basic rights, but it doesn't mean you must there, you know, like I can imagine maybe this metastasizes and like, you know, the, the, the best parts of geek culture of like being inclusive and everything, you know, it extends like, no, not only do you have to be inclusive, but everybody has to be friends with everybody. I mean, that, I think that's ridiculous. And I guess that's why it's a social fallacy, but apparently this does happen. Like reading through these geek social fallacy things, I'll, I'll read off the title. some they go, uh, social fallacies number one through five so one is ostracizers are evil two is friends accept me as i am three is friendship before all four is friendship is transitive meaning if i'm friends with you and i'm friends with him then you and him should be friends and five is friends do everything together and if you read these geek social fallacies they none of them really rang true to me because i guess none of my circles of friends behave like this but i have seen at a distance groups that appeared to behave this way so i totally believe that these are rooted in something this is more like a sort of self-help thing for like how to better interact with other people successfully aimed at geeks uh, emphasizing the things that geeks may uh you know because i guess it could happen like you go too far in the other direction and try to be accepting to everybody and that extends to like inviting everybody to your birthday party and just becomes a disaster Uh, they also talk about uh, YFYP, which is your feelings, your problem. And I think I, I may have that one a little bit more than other people. I think a small dose of that is is, uh, is healthy, actually. But uh, and the YFYP carriers deal with other people's fallacies by ignoring them entirely. In the process, acquiring a reputation for being charmlessly tact- tactless. Yeah, that's probably me. Uh, so anyway, read the article. Maybe if you, if you can identify the things in it, maybe it can help you. Uh, but I think it is not in opposition to anything I said last time. Uh, and if people misinterpreted what I was saying as you have to be best friends with everybody in the world, that was definitely not it. All right, it's okay to not like everyone. Right, you just just can't be a jerk. Them. <laughs> just don't be a I mean, jerk you about the, it. You no, know, like exactly. You know, that's what being excellent to each other means. It doesn't mean being best friends with everybody. It doesn't mean you have to hang out with everybody and talk to everybody about everything. It just means like you can't go up and say I hate you and uh, everything you say about yourself is false and I deny the reality of any of your feelings or interests that's a big range there you know don't do that but you know all right and finally this this last bit of piece of geek culture feedback is more like an extension of the last show and it's very succinct so i'm just going to read it all off this is from john last name withheld uh he says uh, is he related to the other last name withheld guy that's that's an in joke that you don't need to get (laughs) (laughs) uh did i ever do that before maybe i'm repeating myself i probably did all right Uh, So he says, in his screed, Tony Harris seemed mostly concerned with establishing that female cosplayers have no power over him sexually. This underscores a male anxiety that isn't only a nerd concern, but maybe particularly troubling to nerds. One of the traits of masculinity is supposed to be invulnerability or immovability. But truth to tell, male sexual response is mostly involuntary. Excitement comes when it comes. In pop culture, there's a myth of the suave, dispassionate man who can take sexual pleasure on his own terms, but is in no way under the thrall of women. Characters like James Bond can remain unmoved by the women who throw themselves at him. An interesting article about how this plays out in the works of Raymond Chandler is here. And, you know, in typical lit snob fashion, he gives me the link to this Raymond Chandler thing. Maybe that's not a lit snob thing. Maybe it's just a literary person thing. But anyway, I put the link in the show notes if you want to read about how that works in Raymond Chandler uh, novels. Uh, For nerds who are regularly accused of being less than men, the desire to present an impervious front is strong. Uh, so I think this is, a, you know, again, on the last show, I said, here's one uh, explanation uh, or cause of misogyny. Here is another one. The, the idea that uh, masculinity is, is shown to be unmoved by things. Uh, and yet men, you know, inevitably are heterosexual men inevitably are moved by uh, things that they find sexually attractive. And you're supposed to not be right. And so this uh, misogyny is manifesting itself is t- trying to fight against that and say, you, you don't have power over me sexually, revolting against these feelings that are inside themselves about uh, you know, the control that these females seem to have. Uh, so I thought that was a good explanation. And uh, he has another bit at the end here. The one thing that Harris and too many other men also assume is that women are on display for the benefit of men. Those who cosplay do it for a variety of u- reasons unique to themselves, including interest in the characters, the challenge of the craft, the community, self-expression. Some may be involved in sexualizing the display, but it's wrong to assume that even these are doing it for your pleasure or notice. The fallacy is that if you read someone's outfit, and this includes regular clothes as well as dress-up clothes, as sexually provocative that the wearer had you in mind when she chose it. All all very true. All one of the, you know, many, many more reasons for misogyny. Uh, I picked what I thought was the biggest gimme. This is probably like second or third place. Uh, So thanks, John, for that feedback. There was a whole article that I almost put in here from crack.com. Do you know crack.com? No. I can't. I couldn't tell. I thought crack.com was a humor website. And this article was like, it was about similar op topics like, you know, how men are trained to hate women by modern society or something like that. And I'm like, is this, if it's a humor site, there would be more jokes, but if it was a serious site, it would be less crude and offensive. So I couldn't decide. And I just didn't put the link in. So if you want to, look that up you can yourself i didn't think the article was that great but it tried to make some of these similar points mixed in with a bunch of terrible points all right uh, i think that's it for the follow-up okay
1: sponsor time yeah hover.com simplified domain management next time you want to register a domain name check them out if you like them i'll give you 10 percent off code is dan sent me they don't nickel and dime you with stuff. That's the theme for the day for my sponsors today. You go there, you register.com.net.org, whatever. I like the .co, .tv. They've got most of them, if not all of them. They make it really simple. Little search box, type in the domain name that you want. They'll show you if it's available. If it's available for purchase from like somebody else who's selling it, they'll show you that too. If it's available for auction, they'll show you that too. If you want to transfer a domain from somewhere else, which is what I'm doing for pretty much all of my domains They make it really easy. They have this thing called Domain Transfer Valet, where they do the whole process for you, which is really great. And they don't charge for that, just like they don't charge for who is privacy. They also have email hosting. They do charge for that if you want it. There are tons and tons of really, really great services. I mean, they put their toll-free number right on the front page, and they've got a no-hold policy. You just pick up the phone, and you call them, and someone answers, and they will help you. They also have built-in DNS management, which is, that's where I'm hosting my DNS now. So go check them out, hover.com slash dan sent me, and you will find that you receive automatically a 10% discount. You're already a customer, you already have stuff in your shopping cart, so you use the code dan sent me, you get the 10% off. So go check them out, thanks very, very much to Hover for making this show possible. Is it time for the... Questions and answers section.
0: It's time for the Q's and possibly the A's, depending <laughs> on what the Q's are. These kinds of questions
1: that are, are collected right here, you have, for the record, you have not seen, well, maybe you've seen them because I asked on Twitter and you could have been following along, but you messaged me early on and you said, I hope you're collecting these questions because I'm not. And I said, I am. And so here are the questions. And these are these are things that vary dramatically, everything from specific programming questions all the way to very broad things. But I'll start with this one.
0: Well, actually, before you start, okay, I they want the people in the chat room to know that yes, you can still ask questions or follow-ups in the chat room. The whole I point to, is it's not, it's not it's not like, that. you know, it's not like Dan has the preset list of questions and no more questions come in. If something flies by in the chat room we think is interesting, we'll grab it. If it's a follow-up to something I'm talking about, it's the Wild West. There is no system, there is no queue. <laughs> You do not take a number. You're, you are you're at the mercy of Dan and Hattie and me. <laughs> All right. Hattie,
1: watch the chat room, and if you see something good, grab it. Okay, she says she will.
0: And by the way, my first answer is that my first name has an H in it, just for the people out there.
1: How do you spell your name?
0: J O H. Okay.
1: This question, see, I did get some of mine in there. This question asks is uh, from Bradley Chambers, and he says, what was John's favorite episode of Hypercritical? And as a second part... Part two, what podcasts does John listen to?
0: I'm going to give the standard uh, child favorite answer to the podcast question. Do you know what that answer is, Dan?
1: Uh, all of them.
0: No, or, I was like, I, I can't, how the, could I, how could I pick my favorites? It's like picking your favorite child? Um, I don't know. I don't, I really don't have, I could never pick a number one favorite. I like kind of the same episodes that most people liked, you know, uh, I liked the, uh, like toaster episode like steve jobs episode i like the mac os 10 follow-up episodes okay I like, I, I, let me I like, I like all the all the popular
1: ones i have l- no favorite let me r- riff off that one which hypercritical episode do you think is the best representation
0: of hypercritical oh that's tough because like there are ones that that stick to the format the closest but mm-hmm. they're not necessarily the best uh my main problem is as always that I am an old person and can't remember anything. And I can barely remember those of these things. I can barely remember the podcast. Like sometimes they only come up like, Oh, Hey, wait a second. Didn't we do a show about that? Yeah. Right. Like uh, <laughs>
1: that's, that's how you know you're getting old when you're, you, you can be reminded about something that you yourself have done. Oh yeah. And not no, that, that long talk-
0: ago. It happens all the time. Uh, <laughs> I think it really depends on your interest because the, the the problem is I think a lot of the episodes are like, I come out and I go like, that was exactly what I wanted to do. But if no one is interested in that topic, it, you know, people go, "Oh, that episode stunk." Like, but it, whereas, if you happen to be really into model trains, and I happen to do half of a show about model trains, like a good example is the uh, the video game controller episode. If you don't care about video games or controllers, those that show is like death, right? But if you really care about video games and controllers, like, "Oh, that's my favorite one," mm-hmm. right? So maybe that's the most quintessential episode because it's so polarizing, uh, because where I really got uh, you know down and detailed into a topic that I. But care think about, about
1: just re- reflect, if you will, on the. um the Steve Jobs autobi uh, auto, the Steve Jobs biography book. When when you talked about that, to me, to me, that one, or maybe the toaster episode, are as you would say textbook or quintessential hypercritical That I feel like if somebody could listen to either of those episodes, maybe I'm it's the toaster. One. <laughs> not yeah, <laughs> like if you can listen to that toaster episode, if you enjoy that, you are gonna you you get it, you totally get it, and you are gonna
0: yeah. Uh, What I was saying is like, you know, it really depends on if you can relate to, you know, I get all excited about these topics that I'm interested in. (laughs) You have to be able to, to maybe you're not excited about toasters. There's got to be something in your life that makes you feel that way. And Mm -hmm. if you're just a laid back kind of person, doesn't care about the stuff and just sounds like complaining. All right. So, so I don't know. Uh, I don't have a good answer to that one either. This is going to be a the theme of most of these is that I either don't have answers or don't have a good answer.
1: Well, and to continue this, Eric Price asks, what are some of the topics you'd planned to discuss but well, haven't now, gotten actually, to-
0: uh, We skipped over the second part of that question. Oh. I, I remember that far back in my history. Uh, it was <laughs> you, you wanted to also know the other podcasts that I listened to. And a lot of people ask this all the time. I was thinking of, this is another thing I'll have to do is uh, on the fly show notes or keep track of what I need to put in the show notes. So. The list of podcasts I listen to is not that earth-shattering. Like at various times I've listened to almost all the five by five shows. There's just, just too many of them and I can't fit them all in. So I've pared it down. Uh I mean, I'm gonna rattle every single five by five show, but I listen to Marco's show, I listen to Back to Work. Uh, you know, I listen to Amplified when I have a chance, which is rare these days. Uh I listen to all uh, all the incomparables, of course. Uh periodically i'll listen to the other shows the topics uh grab me but like you know basically go through anything by five by five and if you see, if you see a show that's on a topic you think you like then listen to it uh, so i endorse all of those uh the ones that everyone listens to everyone i don't know uh, fresh air all things considered uh, not all things considered fresh air uh what's the other one uh hourglass
1: this american life
0: yes this american Life. i mean you know is that our shattering Yeah. You know, like radio lab things a little bit of radio lab like the number of subscriptions in my podcast section on iTunes is huge. Like there's no way I could listen to them all. I, th- I think it's like over a hundred, right? And I just pick and choose what I'm in the mood for and throw them on that. You look nice today. Uh, I listen to uh, Roderick on the line is a great one. Maybe these like, those are like the lesser known. Maybe like if, if you, if you like back to work, but don't listen to the, you look nice today or Roderick on the line, you should, uh, planet money, the talk show, like people, I'm just reading stuff off the people right in the, in the chat room. Geek Friday, Greek Friday, I actually do listen to, uh, pretty regularly, uh, not earth shattering the ones that the few gems i think i have that at points that i've said before is one if you don't listen to the flop house you should which is a, a podcast where they listen to, they watch bad movies and then complain about them uh, and you can understand why that might appeal to me and not just because uh my friend's brother is part of that show uh and the other podcast i listen to that's just started is the anatech podcast which i think is great in-depth nerdy stuff i also to listen to core intuition uh uh Guy English's couple of shows. Uh, he's got one called Ad Hoc, where a bunch of people talk about stuff. He's got one called Debug, where he talks to developers, edge cases with Wolf Wrench. Oh, so many podcasts. I'm I I'm not just going to lead down my read down my things, but uh, those those are my suggestions for rarities you might not know about. Roderick on the line, the Flop House on uh, the Anatech podcast. That you may not have heard of, may not have been into, and if you listen to this show, you might like them. So there you go. All right, and you were going to continue with the next question.
1: Yeah, um, kind of related to that one, Eric Price. What are some of the topics you'd
0: planned to discuss but haven't gotten to before ending the show? None. Like I said in the previous show, I had a list of topics. I got to all of them, and you know, and then some. There is nothing on my original list that I did not get to talk about. All right, I'm looking at some. I'm trying to decide where we can take this. Let's see. Someone said the flop house how would this get made? No, except no substitutes. The flop house is the one, the only, the original, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the best bad movie podcast. Don't listen to the how did this get made? Don't listen to those other ones. You want the flop house. And by the way, the flop house is one of those shows, kind of like hypercritical, where you have to actually listen from the beginning. And it's been on for like five years. So you're gonna be like, I'm gonna listen, I'm gonna go back five years and listen to this stuff uh yeah that's the only way it works it's the only way it works you got to go back five years and you got to plow through them in order and then finally you can appreciate the current episode uh it's worth it
1: okay all right um pez Pengeli asks what your top five video favorite video games are of all time and uh if they are still you know if they still hold up if there's something we should play or if they're just you know memories and
0: things that you have that you enjoy yeah, if I had to pick my top five, I would not pick based on like memories. You know, like I enjoyed playing Load Runner as a kid or whatever. Uh, I would pick based on what I think the quality of the games are today. Uh, if I'm not going to, so rank this would them.
1: this would not exclude modern era consoles. This would because uh, we had a question from Alan Starnes who said, "What about that? If you were to exclude modern era consoles, well, but I don't, I, mean, I don't think you need to answer. I say just just everything yeah. that's available to you know that could have been played or or whatever."
0: I'm gonna go with like uh Ocarina of Time, Mario 64, uh Shadow of the Colossus, Eco Journey. Like that's just off the top of my head. No no ordering implied there. That's that's an easy top five to pull out. Maybe I'm forgetting some in there, uh, but that's that's an easy top five. And some of those are current generation. some of them are not. Like the you count eco and shadow of the colossus as current generation because they have PS3 ports? They were both original PS2 games, and that's where I originally played them. Uh yeah, those are that's that's a short list, and it's not a not a particularly shocking short list if you listen to this show because I talk about all those games constantly. My next appliance when is is
1: the person's name? What is it? <laughs> My next appliance. These are all, all right. the Twitter handles. My next appliance. I
0: know.
1: I know. What was John's first tech device, and how did you fall in love with tech? So I don't. I, I don't know. How would you define tech device? Is does that include you, a computer? You mean, you mean like the inclined plane? <laughs> i don't yeah i
0: don't want to count as
1: technology i don't know maybe that's okay. part of the question is bu- bundled into the question they is mean, how probably do they probably mean
0: electronics i think uh, they do
1: i think they mean like was it a you know was it a calculator I'm
0: trying to I'm trying to think of what i have scientific first. calculator i think the vic 20 was the first oh, thing oh wow it was like i'm trying to think of remember that football game with yes. the, three, the red lights but yes. i think i had the vic 20 before the little football game. Re- no that little I, you,
1: football game was out way before vic i know 20. But it doesn't
0: mean i had it like, oh right. i think i probably my mother would have never bought me that football game so i probably like got it from a friend once it was too old to be interesting or something but yeah i think the vic 20 was the first uh thing that captured my attention that was clearly a, a piece of technology uh and what was the second part of that question the second part of the question was
1: uh, how did you fall in love with tech
0: yeah, I think it, all it took was the VIC-20, like that you could hook something up to your television and you could press buttons on it and things would appear on your television because up to that point in my life, the television was merely something that sent out information, but now I could do things that would show up on the television. Mm. It was magic
1: you know, so that, controlled the television that's right.
0: it's like it's you know your life is defined by like what the television is you know sesame street and <laughs> muppet show or whatever. you know it's like this amazing box where entertainment comes out and like and it totally flips it like guess what no now you can put stuff in there it's like no way you know people don't understand how crazy that was but i think i think it really was key that the thing you hooked it up to was a television like it didn't come with a monitor it wasn't like you know a modern computer I think that really, really was key. Even though it sounds like, oh, well, that was just this weird transitional phase, where they didn't have monitors and, you know, they would just sell you the computer. But it was important that you were using your television as the monitor because it was subverting an existing sort of uh, relationship that you had with a piece of technology in your house.
1: Stephen Skelding. If you were offered your choice of
0: any job within the Apple hierarchy, what role would you pick and why? Yeah, there's only one job that I am qualified for at Apple, which is Steve Jobs's old job, which is the job where you tell everybody else what to do. That's right. Uh, and you know, and that there's not an opening for that job because really my only qualification is that I have strong opinions about things. And that's probably true of a lot of people. Like, you know, I don't I I'm not an objective C programmer, I don't do user interface design, I'm not a, an electrical engineer. Like, I'm useless to the organization in any capacity except that one position where you tell everybody else what to do and and rule with an iron fist and i'm not saying i would do a good job but that is the only position i can imagine taking at the company a lot of people ask me that's actually one of the questions i haven't like have you ever considered working at apple uh n- not really because the first thing is that they tend to want their employees to be in california and i don't want to move to california like i said in the past show a lot of who's able to hire who has to do with where people live and if if they want me to be in california and i don't want to live in california well that's the end of that right right And the second is that from everything I heard from people who work inside Apple, it's not as glamorous as you might think. It's, you know, it's it's a corporate stooge job. The corporation may be a a corporation that makes great products, but it's a corporation and you've got bosses and middle management and all the same things that happen in any other company. And yeah, it's great because you get to work on really cool things. And if you happen to be in the right group, you can do some really great work and change the world and blah, blah, blah. Uh, But, you know, it's it's just another job. Right. Like, unless you're a, a guy in charge of something you can really influence stuff, I'm not sure, you know. Okay, how, so I, the,
1: this ties in perfectly um, with Alex Chan's question. Tim Cook resigns tomorrow and appoints you as his successor. What is the first thing you'd change at
0: Apple? Uh, the first thing, because it's the easiest gimme, is uh, it's difficult to know because like... Wait, I, what, what gonna, the gimme? Yeah, I'm going to say something, but... The question is, what would you change? Yeah. And that implies that you know everything that Apple is currently doing, and we don't. Obviously. Okay, it's secret. So if I go in there, and it, 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 the only thing I knew, if the, if the only things that Apple was doing were the things I know about now, the first thing I would do would be to start a project to make a new file system. Now, maybe you already they already have a project to make a new file system. Maybe that's going to be come out next week. I don't know. But like from the outside, like that's, that's the easiest gimme change because they desperately need a new file system. They've needed it for such a long time. It's such a key component in everything that they do. And it's only going to become more important over time. You just cannot have your data on a file system that has no idea whether your data is correct or not and it routinely corrupts itself. It's boring. It's technical. It's like, oh, you're missing the big picture, blah, blah, blah. But like, that's just a gimme. Day one, you go and do that. Uh, The the reverse of that, the very difficult project is that I would go about trying to change the company uh, to make it more focused on server-side culture. If you've listened to Hypercritical for the past couple years, you know I keep harping on this, but it's totally true. That the ways in which apple is not like google in terms of the focus on the on server side hardware and software it it should i think it should be more like them in that regard doesn't mean you need to take away any of the good things that apple does doesn't mean you have to oh you got to make them like google and make them bad at all no they stay good at the stuff they're good at but try to also foster you know maybe it's like a part of the company a section of the company you just add to the culture that the the kind of culture that makes you uh, you know, write your own infrastructure components like, you know, the Google file system or, or Bigtable or Spanner or the Apple or, or Amazon's web services and EC2 like that needs to go into Apple, that kind of culture and idea and expertise that needs to happen. So that would be my my, you know, so there's two, two changes. One is the little tiny one about the file system and the other one is big, giant, company wide, sweeping, philosophical. Uh, and both of those probably sound like terrible answers because. Like I said, people think that the little one about the file system is unimportant and it's missing to the forest for the trees and people think the other one is going to turn Apple into Google and make them bad at all the stuff that they're good at. And I would try to avoid that.
1: Okay, so this is kind of addressing Glenn Gray's question where he says, aside from the HFS Plus file system replacement, what technology do you think Mac OS X, or OS 10 as you say, is sorely missing at this point?
0: Uh, well, I've already harped on the language and API issue with Objective-C that I don't think you can keep going on forever, altering Objective-C. I'd like to see a better language, but I'm not sure if that would count as, as an operating system feature. What I would focus on, I think that there's been a lack of really interesting stuff going on in the kernel space. Uh, I was just talking earlier today about uh, like when you have an OS update. Remember when they used to give you an OS update in like, many, many versions ago, Mac OS X? And it would say, uh, this, this update requires a restart and you would just click the button it would do the install. And then yeah. at the end of the install, it would say, okay, uh, I've applied the, you know, 10.4.3 update, uh, click this button to restart. And then you just leave the dialogue up on your, on your computer. You keep for working. Months. Yeah. Right. Which is terrible. Like <laughs> it's updating the operating system while you're using it. And then, and so the new policy is that they, uh, they don't let you, they say, okay, this, this update requires a restart, and you have to just immediately log out, all the apps quit, and then it does download, you know, it installs the installer. It downloads it while you're working, but then it does the installer when you're not working, right? So the idea of, you know, this requires kernel space changes and hardware changes and everything, but the idea of a system that is more robust, kind of more like mainframes, where you can, like, do things on the fly without restarting restarting the system, like completely replace the kernel or swap out CPUs, and you know, all these crazy mainframe features that people who are into mainframe computers know about and say this is why mainframes are still relevant because you know I can replace the CPU without stopping any transactions on this machine that runs this banking system or whatever. Uh, those type of features, hardware that hardware and software combined, an operating system that is sort of works with the hardware in a symbiosis type relationship where you can you know modify upgrade recover and inspect these things you know in real time without restarting without any sort of these barbaric things that we have to do now and this is an example where people can say oh that's crazy yeah maybe you need that for mainframes that are running banking systems in the stock market and stuff but you don't need that on personal computers but this is how technology works crazy features happen on, on mainframes first like virtual memory who the heck is going to need that right and then it trickles down uh and this is the uh, the next thing i think that needs to trickle down especially as our electronics are becoming more like appliances that we sort of have the technology and know-how to do a lot of these things, but so far, not the will to say, I'm going to make a new thing that rejects the old way, that says, no, you don't have to restart uh, when we when we give you an update to the kernel or some other part of the operating system. In fact, you can do everything on the fly. There is nothing that requires you to stop everything you're doing, turn everything off, dump all the contents of memory, and restart. Uh, so that kind of that kind of ambition to bring... Uh, mainframe level robustness robustness to things the size of a wristwatch or or a phone. Uh, And I think that requires core operating system changes and some more exciting advancements there instead of just like adding slightly more fine grain locking or transactional memory to the unified buffer cache or whatever.
1: All right, let's do another sponsor, Prop & Go. Have
0: you ever tried one of these?
1: What is it called? Prop & Go? Prop & Go. I want to try and see if we can get We need to get one of them sent. Because this is what it is. It's like you've seen these laptop things you put on your lap, right? That have like the soft like memory foam thing on the bottom. And and it props up. That's what this is for the iPad. You can use it with an iPad mini. You could use it with a you know, full size iPad. You could use it with your Nexus ten if you wanted. But it's perfect if you watch movies in bed or play games on the couch and you just don't want to sit there trying to hold something like precariously balancing it. It's perfect for this. It works anywhere. We use it a lot of the time. We'll just put it right here. I'll put it right here on the desk. Slide that thing around because it's really secure. It works with a case. You have a case on your device, that's fine. Just put the device down and you're done. You Have an iPad mini with no case, it works perfect. Even if we go into the ha- how do you say this? Otter box. Can you say that, John?
0: Otter box? Like the like yeah, the little furry animals? Otters?
1: Yeah. OtterBox. box. Yeah. Any yeah. tablet in or out of the case, it works it works just fine. We're gonna get one of these sent to John. Okay. We're gonna get you one. You get a seven, how do they come up with a 17% discount? I still don't understand why. You get a prop and go, P-R-O-P-N, go, go propandgo.com, 17% off your order. Use the code DanSentMe. You can also buy it right from Amazon. These things are really cool, adjustable, any angle you want, propandgo.com. All right, more questions for you. There's a lot of these. Boy, there's a lot.
0: And go doesn't just work with iPads. I look at their website, they have like Kindles and stuff on it too.
1: It works with the, yeah, it works with any, any tablet device. Anything you can actually. prop, anything that is propable. All right, here's a neat one jumping around. See, Franco, Carlos Franco, if John could interview one person alive now and ask one question, who would it be and what would he ask?
0: <sighs> oh, that's a tough one. You 20, already had 1, that chance. One
1: question with, with Gabe Newell, you already had the chance. I figure that you already did that but maybe the second
0: person (laughs) uh alive now i would probably pick jonathan colton and i decline to tell you what the question would be because who knows someday i might get to ask it to him i don't want him to pre-think about the question
1: as a surprise for this show we had jonathan flown in
0: right 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 and uh he's right here no i'm just kidding uh, that's. Pro- i mean i don't know like that's probably my pick but that's like totally a personal pick because that wouldn't be an interview i wouldn't be doing it for the benefit of mankind because this would be I mean, a conversation if, if the world is not lacking in jonathan colton interviews let's say it's not like i'm breaking new ground but i'm a big fan and i think it would be cool maybe bono i don't know maybe i'd throw that in. <laughs> well maybe bono
1: uh don mcdonald old mcdonald as we call him asks if you still draw And if not, have you ever thought about taking it up again? And if yes, have you ever posted or published any
0: of your drawings? I don't really draw other than like doodling and stuff like, you know, but you don't get much time to doodle anymore in this modern computer age. Remember how much you everyone used to doodle like in school because all you've got like your board and you've got a pencil (laughs) and you've got paper and folders and margins and stuff. And so you do it like crazy. But if you spend all day in front of a computer and a keyboard, there's like no place to doodle and people don't. Like, oh, let me open up a little sketchpad app and start doodling with my mouse. It's just too much of, there's too much barrier to entry. Whereas idle doodling, you just give anyone a pen and a piece of paper and like put them on the phone and they will just make tremendous creations on that pad of paper while they talk on the phone. Uh, That should be, if there's not already a Tumblr for this, there should be called like phonedoodles.com or something like that, or idle doodles, where someone has a pen and any piece of paper or newspaper or anything near them, and they're doing something else like talking on the phone or, or. You know, just having a conversation with somebody and the amazing things that come out of people's hands when they're just idly doodling crazy looking fractal things, cityscapes, you know, uh, giant robot dinosaurs, like all sorts of amazing things. I think those should be collected because that's the type of thing where you say, oh, I don't draw. But then you look at the huge volume of doodles they produce during the year. I'm like, that's art. Like you're expressing yourself unconsciously, perhaps. But uh, but other than that, yeah, I would say, no, I don't do uh, any formal drawing anymore these days. Kind of for the reasons stated in my hypercritical thing on the Arstechnic article you can read if you want to. Uh, I do have a lot of my old stuff hanging around. Like when I was a kid, my entire room was covered with uh, comics that I cut out of the newspaper and posters <laughs> and also things that I drew myself. Uh, like covered entire walls and onto the ceiling. And I have some of those things saved also around my house. I have some of the paintings I did when I was a kid because I, I took art lessons from the time I was like eight until like 16 and worked my way up through various things like, you know, what was that? pencils, oil pastels, watercolor, acrylic, oil paints, sort of in that progression. And so I have a lot of these paintings still around. They're hanging up in my house, like in my TV room. They're not particularly good paintings. I haven't published them anymore. You're not missing anything, believe me. But it, I enjoy looking at them. Like I'm sitting there watching TV. I can glance up and see. I enjoy seeing my own artwork from when I was a kid in my own house. It makes me happy. Uh, and like I said, most of the other things I did are like uh, pretty bad copies of Larry Elmore paintings. <laughs> uh, if you don't know who uh, Larry Elmore is, you should Google that and look at his stuff because it's awesome.
1: Uh,
0: so there you go. An- another. Oh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I wanted. I wanted to. For people who don't like my lack of telling you what I'm going to ask, uh, Jonathan <laughs> Colton, I'll yeah. give you my Bono question. Hmm. Probably my Bono question because I'm never going to meet him and he's never answered my question, so it's no no danger for that. Uh, I would probably and this this tells you what kind of terrible sycophantic. Fanboy type questions I have in mind here. Uh, I would probably ask Bono. I always wonder this about artists who have had long careers. And, you know, Bono started his band when he was like 17 years old, right? And they're still together. It's kind of like the Rolling Stones, you know, they just, you can't stop them, right? And some people say they should stop because they're old people now. But I would ask Bono when you listen to like an early album, like you listen to Boy or October or something, and you hear that 17 year old kid on the album like singing from the top of his throat and screeching and talking about stuff like, you know, how old is he now? He's like 50 or something. Maybe he's 60. I don't know how old Bono is. Sorry, Bono, if you're not 60, uh, what do you think of that kid who you he hear? is 52 years old? there you go i would would ask him what do you think about that kid that you hear singing on those albums does it seem like a different person to you or do you still feel like that kid like what what do you think when you hear that because you got to think like you know he's not listening to his own music or whatever he's probably sick of hearing like things from the joshua tree and stuff but like maybe he's just hanging out walking through the supermarket one day in dublin and a track from boy comes on what does he think about that kid like in his private moments you know i was i want to know what that's like like is does he disassociate? Does that seem like a different person because he's come so far since then? Or does he still feel like that exact same person? And somehow he's shambling around this big old person's body. Uh, that's my Bono question. You can imagine how, uh, cloying my, uh, Jonathan Colman question would be. <laughs> okay.
1: Um, so going back to your history, Dennis Bailey, what were some of young John's favorite childhood toys would, or, or do
0: your children enjoy anything similar? uh some of my children have my some of my favorite childhood toys because i save them uh i of course liked all the kenner star wars toys i just uh, tweeted last night i'm, I'm watching the show on travel channel called toy hunter where this guy uh, a toy reseller goes around to people's houses and buys their toys and then you know resells them and it's just like if you are my age you know uh mid to late 30s you will see all the toys that you played with as a kid on this show. And it's, it's kind of depressing and kind of exciting. But anyway, uh, the Battlestar Galactica plastic toys that came out when that series was on, uh, I lost my Battlestar Galactica Viper. And then we moved <laughs> to a different house. <laughs> oh, and man. I was like, I, I lost my, I lost my storm, Kenner's Stormtrooper, just a plain white Stormtrooper. And I lost my Viper. And those two losses like continue to haunt me to this day. That was very important. Those toys were very important to me. And we moved to a new house without them. And I was crushed by it. Uh, I liked a lot of the imported Japanese transformable things. So, like, I'd go to the uh, Tri County Flea Market and Long Island Arena for people who are from that area. Uh, Two places where they had flea markets where they have import sellers who would sell boxes with Japanese writing all over them of you know Voltron or uh, various Robotech uh, types of toys. Not branded as Robotech half the time because they were from the original Japanese series. Yeah, they were die cast. Many small parts like a plastic plus die cast plus lots of hinges and tiny little things. Toys that did not exist in America because you couldn't give like these are basically toys for adults practically because you give this to any normal kid and they would destroy it. But I love these things and I would buy them for like, you know, 60 or 80 dollars, which is a lot of money in like 1982 for a little kid. A couple of those I still have and I gave to my son and he's like not interested in them, which is depressing. So they're just up on his shelf. Uh, And of course, things like Legos and stuff, which were that was my toy construction kit where I would build other toys out of the Legos. Uh, that's probably if i had to think of one toy that i played with the most as a kid it would probably be legos which i'm not supposed to say as legos but i do because yeah. lego toys and blocks
1: yes all right so let me let me shift gears a little bit because people are they ask a lot of technical questions here and i'll pick a few of the lighter ones uh fizon i'm pronouncing it like python postgresql mysql which
0: Yep. I have that topic on my list and I decided not to do it because I thought it was too boring. <laughs> so That's the question. Of like, is there any topics you, on your list that you didn't get to that you wanted to? That was on the list, but I didn't want to get to it. But if you just want the one word answer, uh, Postgres. Like, <laughs> I don't like MySQL for so many reasons. I think I talked about this once on the show, but I'll give my capsule summary of it. Uh, it depends on how you view the database. Like, well, for there's a couple things. So one is like, why is MySQL so popular? And that has to do with lots of like social reasons and like, you know, ease of use and stuff. But if, if you are like a database nerd, so like if, if you're not worried about, oh, tell me which one I can figure out how to get set up or which one is just going to work best with some framework out of the box. So like, right. I don't care about those things because I know about databases. I don't care which one is like easier to set up. I don't care which one most people use. I don't because all those things are not barriers to entry to me. I can figure it out. I can make it work, you know, Right. So you're immediately judging by criteria that most people aren't judging by. Because most people are like, I don't care what the database you Just tell me which one works with the thing. Oh, Rails likes MySQL? Fine, I'll just go with that, right? But if you're not that person, if you're a database nerd, if you spent your whole career doing backend web programming, you, wanna, you want the one that matches your philosophy. And my philosophy was, and probably still is, that the database is the defender of the data. I want a database that lets me set itself up in a way that it is impossible for that database to ever contain data that is invalid. Right. And I want all the cool database features that let me do that. And I want it to have high performance and I want to be able to, you know, define my own types and do all sorts of, you know, all sorts of fancy databasey type things. Really rich stored procedure language. So things that are faster to do in stored procedures, I can do that way. Like all database nerd stuff. And MySQL is not even a contender in those things. Whereas Postgres gives me all those things and more. It you know gives me. The ability to make a data, my database the defender of the data with tons of cool features, half of which I might not even need, but someday maybe I think I will. Uh, and I've used both of them extensively. And you know, if I had to pick for any project that I was doing, I would pick Postgres and not MySQL. It doesn't mean you should pick Postgres and not SQL. You know, you should use whatever criteria you want. But MySQL has a history of not being the defender of the data of letting you p- letting you insert you know letters into integer columns and marking a column is not null and and allowing a empty string and null even null values in them like this yeah my my sql is depressing to me i don't like it i never liked it if i could ever <laughs> avoid using it i would postgres oh boy someone in the chat room pointed out that there is a larry elmore kickstarter project which is already funded uh i think it's still going 25 days to go yes it had <laughs> Its goal was $17,000 and it's up to $153,000. I put a link in the show notes. Uh, Take a look if you want to see who Larry Elmore was. Okay. Or is. It's by Larry Elmore, so there you go. Keith Parkinson, too. I also like his name. Keith Parkinson?
1: Keith Parkinson. Have you, um, Mason, Mason who on Twitter asks, have you ever considered building a Hackintosh so you can use macOS but still have a more powerful computer? This, of course, coming from... Uh, your well-known discontent with the state of the Mac pro. I have never seriously considered it because I, that's like, I don't want to do that. Have you built, I'm, have I'm, you built PCs in the past? I know that you've upgraded, you know, upgraded Macs and stuff like that. You're on, on your own, but have you ever like built a PC?
0: No, never built my PC, never even owned a PC. I've, I've, I'm kind of in this, the, like the place where you are now where you don't want to build PCs for other people and you don't want to build your own. You just want to buy one and have it be done. I've always been in that place. I've never wanted to. <laughs> the closest smart. I've You're come smart. is like wanting to play PC games when I was a kid because, you know, PC games had color. Especially once, like, I saw my first PC game in 640 by 480 because I'd, I'd see their PC games and they were in color, but it's, you know, 320 by 200 and CGA or even EGA. It was like, oh, Warrior 2, it's cool and all, but EGA, seriously? It's just because my friends just had, you know, CGA and EGA cards. But Finally, when one got a VGA card and played like Syndicate and 640x480, I'm like, all right, I, I'd like to play that game. But I just played it over their house instead. Never owned a PC, never bought a PC, never wanted to build one. I, I could be pushed to the point where I have to build one, but so far that has not happened. I'm just patiently waiting with my 2008 Mac Pro, patiently waiting for 2013. Like Tim said, he said. <laughs> Ian Silverwood, do you think
1: there will be a new Mac Pro in the same form or something else? What do you want? In the 2013 Mac Pro, he says re, you know, Mac Pro and or replacement. And this is when Marco and I were talking about this earlier in the week on Build and Analyze, you know, we identified, I think Marco pointed out that, you know, Tim didn't say we'll have an updated Mac Pro for you. He said, we'll have something for those of you who like the Mac Pro. It was it was much more ambiguous than that. Like, oh, well, you know, if you like the Mac Pro, hey, we'll have something for you in 2013.
0: Marco didn't make that point. I made that point. Many, many times I've made that point. Oh, you did. uh,
1: And so you get the credit for it. But he made that point on the
0: show, whether we attributed it to you or not. (laughs) It's it's the same point. Yes. And it it bears uh, repeating. Anyway, uh, I think the odds of something that looks just like a current Mac Pro with different stuff on the inside is like below 50 percent. Because like then, what's the point? Like all this waiting and the only thing you're going to have is something that's exactly the same. It's called a Mac Pro. It looks like a big cheese grater, but just the insides are different that seems spectacularly unlikely to me. Or maybe, you know, less than 50%. I would bet against it. Uh, If only because, like, the optical drive is going away everywhere. Not because it has to, but because that's what Apple does. Like, is is there a reason the optical drive had to leave the iMac? No, but that's the thing that Apple's doing. So how can you take a thing, a case this big, and there was room for two optical drives, oh, we're just going to put a blank spot there and not have them and just fill it with more hard drives? Like, it seems crazy to me that something that, that Mac Pro users might like would come out and it would be in exactly the same big cheese grater case. Uh, so I'm hoping it's not in the same case and I don't expect it to be.
1: And you will, you will get one. Probably. Yeah. Okay, Martin Barron. Under what conditions would you switch to PC or Windows? What hypothetically would need to happen hardware software wise before the switch? Suppose OS 10 was discontinued. What operating system would you switch to? Switch to PC or Windows? Yeah, that's the. Under I, what conditions? I, I don't. I don't write it,
0: these questions. If Apple had gone out of business in like 1997, yeah. Uh, no, I we're talking. He's talking
1: about now, though. Martin,
0: I, is, I know. I'm trying. I'm trying to think of scenarios where I'd switch. All right. But if Apple, if Apple had gone out of business in 1997, I probably would have switched to Linux. But I probably also would have dual booted Windows for games. The only way I can imagine I would ever switch to Windows or switch away from uh, Mac OS 10 God I, even if Apple disappears tomorrow like I would I would go to UNix I would not because my you know I, I love Apple stuff but I also love Unix. I do not love almost anything about Windows except for the fact that it runs some games that I like uh, so no, I would I would go to Unix I would not go to, to Windows because I you know and it and, and you say what if Unix goes away I don't think I think that's harder to do. You could probably make Apple go away, but you can't make Unix go away. So I would, I would almost certainly go to Unix. This, despite the fact that, like I said, I don't want to screw with my stuff. I don't want to build my own PC. I don't want to set up config files. Uh, but I would still, I would still go with Unix. But I hope, I hope it never comes to that.
1: Anna Debenham, who's a friend of the show, I guess we can say that. She says, "What do you want to see game console manufacturers doing over the next few years?" Now we, we talked about that android style console but then the other thing you kickstarted. What, what what are you hoping for is it the wii u
0: i hope the game console manufacturers first i hope they stay in business that's my first hope for all of them because they are sort of beset on all sides by competitors that are sort of you know is there room for a traditional game console i hope that there continues to be room for that device and i hope they innovate in such a way that they stay in business uh second thing is i hope that they sort of are more bold about making radical technological changes uh it seems like i mean you can't expect a a cheap home game console to have the power of like a pc with a 600 hundred dollar video card inside it right you just can't compete with that kind of uh money but you can do interesting things on the console that you can't do on the PC. Like the, the PS3, I think, was very technically just inter- interesting with the cell architecture and stuff. And there's no way they could fly on the PC because it would be incompatible with all software. And it was this crazy architecture and it's just not going to fly at all. But you can do that on the console. Now, I don't think the PC was this res- PS3 was this resounding success. And I don't think the cell experiment was a particularly big success. But that kind of innovation, it can't happen in the PC, PC space. It can't happen in the Mac space. It really can't happen in the phone or tablet space. Because they have such an entrenched, you know, backward compatibility culture and stuff like that. Whereas on the game console space, it's still okay to say maybe your old games will run on the PS4, or maybe they won't. You know, I mean, they always try to do some nod to backward compatibility, but that's a relatively recent phenomenon. And I wish that would be beaten back a little bit, mm. uh, because it lets that that divide of saying, well, from one generation of the console to the next, lets them wipe the slate clean and go, uh, all right, well, we don't really care if PS2 games play on the PS3. Like the way they did it was they put the PS2 a motion engine chip thing onto one system on a chip and they just shoved it on the motherboard next to the ps3 it was basically a ps2 and a ps3 next to each other and eventually they just ditched the ps2 compatibility entirely and you know people grumbled a little bit but we all survive right uh i like that i like being able to wipe the slate clean and so that's what i hope console makers continue to do this is anachronistic to like, oh, say what they should really start to do is be more like the app store and you know do all the stuff they need to do to stay in business but what I love about the consoles are the old things that are terrible for them that are driving them out of business. But if you ask me what I want, that's what I want.
1: All right, let me uh, here. Oh, here's a good one. Nicholas Ward, a.k.a. Ultra Nerd. Would you ever leave Pearl for another language? What would such a language need or how could Pearl be improved? Well, I think that last part, <laughs> that's, that's a whole show or a whole series. The first part, would you ever leave Perl for another language and what would the language need?
0: You know, it's not like, uh, that's not really how development works in the modern world where you're like, you know, I, you're an ex-programmer and you do all your programming in that language and you can leave it for another language. Like at various times in my current career, like I've spent not just like a day or a month or a week, but whole, you know, long sections of my work life doing most of my programming in JavaScript, in in PL SQL for Oracle and PL SQL for for Postgres, like just because Perl is the language I know best and and like the most doesn't mean that that's where I spend the majority of my time. So I think all programmers these days are sort of multi language. You, you have to be. I mean, a CSS canvas language certainly JavaScript does. Like you can't just be a programmer in one particular language. So I don't think I'm like, am I leaving Perl when I spend three months writing JavaScript? No, like, have I left it? I don't know, I don't really know what that means. If you're asking if there's a language that I like better than Perl, like... I think it, I think what he's
1: trying to say is your your programming language of choice is Perl. What would it take for your programming language of choice to not be Perl, to be something yeah, else?
0: you need a language that I like better than Perl. Like, do I like Ruby better than Perl? No, I don't. Like, I look at... But that's the, pro- the problem with Perl, as I think I said in previous shows, when I look at other languages, like Python and Ruby and stuff like that, like, in Ruby, I see a language that should have learned more from Pearl but didn't. Uh, like making the same mistakes that Pearl made. Which sounds crazy. It's like, well, but Pearl already made those mistakes. So like why, you know, why are you sticking with the language that you're acknowledging has mistakes? It's like, well, I'm not going to leave for another one unless I think it's learned everything there is to learn from Pearl and it's not made those mistakes. And Python is like philosophically different, has like a different style and flavor and that it's, you know, very different from sort of the Pearl culture. And that's not like the way, that's not the kind of culture I like. JavaScript, no, I don't, you know, it's not, I don't, I don't dislike JavaScript for the reasons that that most people who dislike JavaScript dislike it. Again, I dislike it, you know, not because the DOM is ugly, not because working with browsers is annoying. All those things are true. But like as a language, it's just so feature poor and limited and oversimplified and things that should be simple are complicated. And just, you know, like the reason CoffeeScript exists is because people who are programming language kind of servers don't like JavaScript. It's not a great language. We like what you can do with it. We like the fact that there are fast engines you can run, on, all sorts of other reasons, but as a language, not great. So so far, there is not a language out there that I like better than Perl. And what it would take for me to leave Perl for another language in that sense would be for me to see a language that I say, this language is more fun for me to work with the Perl. It doesn't mean the language is better, it just means I like it better. That so far that has not happened. I think I named most of the contenders. There's some other one I'm forgetting that people want to hear me uh, exp- express my distaste for. I can do that. But uh, Chris
1: Shuck asks if you've ever resorted to programming in Python. Uh,
0: I think I have a couple of scripts that I have hacked up that are written in Python. <laughs> I don't think I've ever started a script from scratch in Python. Like no, I have, like, My Twitter backup script is someone else's Python Twitter backup script that I have modified over there.
1: Yeah, like that Flickr exporter thing, the same thing. Like I don't, No one should have
0: to write in Python. Yeah, it's not, it doesn't match with my, and some parts of it do match with my philosophy, but the other parts of it don't, and Python is another language that I felt like, oh man, like it's, I see it going through some of the same things that Perl did with like Python's OO system where they changed their mind and made a different OO system, but like all of them are, you just look at it and you're like, no, you know, you, you didn't, that didn't work out for you guys. You didn't quite figure it out. You're close. You have some things that are good, but no, not for me.
1: Crisis. Who's Crisis121 on Twitter? What are the most important things you've learned about podcasting since starting Hypercritical? It's that crisis with a Y. It is C R I S I S
0: 121. Oh, wow. The most important things I've learned about podcasting? Yes. That is the question. I guess the most important thing I learned about podcasting is that I am passively able to do it. which was a question to begin with like i I don't know if i've talked about this but my my fairy pod mother the person who uh i listened to who made me think that podcasting is a thing that i might like to try to do uh was a uh fantasy fiction author named mer Lafferty she has still has i think a podcast called well i I originally listened to geek Fu action grip which i think is gone and (laughs) she's got one got one called i should be writing which was a podcast uh for wannabe fiction writers by a wannabe fiction writer, but then she had to drop the wannabe when she became a published author. So congratulations to her. But, uh, both of those shows were just her talking into a microphone about, about writing and geek related things. That's it. No co co-host, no anything. She produced them all herself. She just sat down in front of her desk. She took letters from people. She read them. She talked about writing and, and what it means to be a good writer and had little segments and had sponsors and all of those stuff. Uh, and I love listening to them despite the fact that I'm not a wannabe fiction writer. Uh, and I said, you know what, this is just one person sitting wherever she is, North Carolina or something, sitting in some room in front of a microphone and talking. And because she's an interesting person has an interesting thing to say. I'm sitting here listening to them. Right. I'm like, I have interesting things to say. It <laughs> seems seems like something that I could do. And that was years and years ago before, you know, I, I don't remember when those things started, but it was way before five by five and way before, you know, that was, I think there was even a gap in there where like podcasts stopped being a thing for me, but that, uh, that's that's the most important thing i've learned about podcasting is that uh it's one of the things that i am able to passively do like you know unlike say uh flamenco dancing or gymnastics or something you're like oh that's interesting thing but it doesn't seem like something that i'm ever going to do this seemed like something i wanted to try and and could do it in a way that would not be a complete failure so uh that's the that's say the most important thing i've learned almost everything else about podcasting dan knows and not me like i don't you know all the parts about podcasting i just show up and talk like i don't know anything that's, about
1: what you're doing is i mean what i'm doing is the, all the moving pieces and stuff like that but you're doing the hard part
0: well i mean it, it depends on the way you view it like because lafferty was doing both parts like she set up the website and it got the sponsors and you know had everything work right and made the rss feed work and dealt with itunes stuff and bought bandwidth and like you know that is a big important part of podcasting. I just don't know anything about it because I don't do any of that stuff. That's the, that's the service that five by five provides. Uh, so I can't give any insight into it. That's what you mean by it. When people say podcasting, sometimes they mean like, how do I physically set up a podcast and get it to show up on iTunes and stuff like that. And the other side of it is, uh, how do I make something in recorded audio form that other people actually want to want to listen to? Uh, it's kind of,
1: kind of related to that. Uh, Let's see this question. Okay, what tips does John have for an aspiring journalist that wants to gr- that would like to grow up to be just like him, Ron Glassman?
0: I think I've emphasized this before, but I I do not view myself nor have I ever viewed myself as a journalist because I think of that. Maybe I'm wrong in thinking of journalists in this way. Maybe it's a too narrow definition. But I think of someone as like a reporter who like whose training is how to go out and get a story the journalist doesn't have to know anything about uh football to be well maybe sports is a bad example that's that's probably the counter example you don't have to know anything about like county government to be the guy who sits in all the county government meetings and does reporting you'll learn about it once you have that beat and you're supposed to your job is i'm a smart guy but i don't need domain knowledge i can just go into any topic Learn about it enough to write a story like a magazine writer or something, you know, you get embedded with the troops and learn about it or talk to some people at some startup about technology, learn enough about technology to then summarize it and explain it to people or or do reporting or sit in the White House press room and ask questions. About it. And you will learn the beat as you get onto it. But your training as a journalist is I don't I don't have this job because I'm the guy who knows the most about superconductors. I am from Time Magazine interviewing this scientist about superconductors because I'm a journalist and a journalist can write a great story about anything. Just send me in. I'll figure it out. I'll do the research, right? That's not me. I am not a journalist. I've never have been. I don't want to be a journalist. It's not something I aspire to. I have a very difficult time writing about even the topics I know about. I'm totally unable to write about topics that I don't know about. I'm not interested in, you know, researching them and figuring them out for people. Like, I don't I don't want to be the guy who has to tell you about the police blotter in a small town. Like, that's that's not interesting to me at all so i have very few chips on how to be a journalist because i'm not one and don't know how to be one and it would be a terrible one if i had to be uh the few things that i know i know by like contact with other people i think was this in the crossover i think on the most recent episode of the crossover was jason snell he talked about how dan morin became a journalist yeah he walked up to him and said i'd like i want to write for you guys yeah the first thing he did i think i actually learned recently the very first thing that dan morin had published i hope i don't get this wrong dan is that he i don't know how it got got into the paper, but he wrote something for the Boston globe about star Wars episode one. Like I think it was about the fandom or you know, maybe it was before the thing came out or about waiting in line. I don't remember the details, but uh, he was published in a newspaper and that must have been difficult to pull off. But in this modern age, you know, going up to Jason Snell at a trade show saying, Hey, I like Max. So I want to write for MacWorld." Uh, that's a weird kind of getting your foot in the door. And at this point uh, we're talking about Lex Friedman, who Jason also talked about, didn't even have to see him in a trade show. He just tweeted to him and said, you know, the Macworld tweeted, hey, we're looking for people to review software. And Lex replied and said, all right, I'll, I like to review software. And they gave him a shot. Uh, basically, it's easier than ever to get your foot in the door uh, at some established publication. And if you don't or can't do that, you can always try doing it on your own. The bottom line is that the reason Dan Moore and Lex Friedman have jobs at Macworld now is because they were good at what they did. Not awesome, super great the very first time out the door, but there was obviously like something there. And how did that something get there? Is it because they spent their high school careers at the student newspaper. They're really into English. They read a lot of books. All those things combine. Like you can't just be some random person who's like, you know what? I think I might like to try journalism. You have to put in the work to do all the stuff to become well-read. Read lots of journalism. Write stuff on your own. Just be terrible at it for a long time and work your way up. Uh, and eventually, there's no reason why if you work on that skill set and are in- truly interested in a topic, you can't uh, get a job in that field. But I've never done it myself, and I don't I don't want a job in that field. So. I don't know how much help I can give there.
1: All right. How did you become Stephen Mann? No relation. I would be tickled if you asked John, how did you become such an accomplished critic? In other words, how is it that you are capable of so efficiently and completely breaking this stuff down,
0: finding out what's wrong with things? I think a lot of it is genetic, just like your personality, if you're a complainer. If you're a whiner, if you're, if you're uh, like complaining about stuff like that, and that hypercritical thing or stack thing I talked about that was, you know, one of my major innate skill was <laughs> you know, the ability to figure out what's wrong with things. Uh, a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, ha- having that sort of disposition, but also growing up in a house, uh, you know, I, my family is Italian and we would yell at each other and argue at the at the dinner table about everything. So if you're in, like... I don't know. You see, you see the parodies of different types of American families on television. One one of the stereotypes is sort of the WASPy Protestant family having Thanksgiving dinner very nicely, and you know they carve the turkey and everyone quietly eats, and so this is wonderful, mom. And they eat them, whatever. And the other stereotype is the giant Italian family yelling at each other over Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner. That was right. Quite, not in a bad, <laughs> you know. People who see that, like, it, depending on where you're coming from, you like you're repulsed by that and you think it's awful, and they all hate each other but if you're from that kind of environment it makes you it, it makes it's heartwarming uh and so that's the environment i came from the time where everyone's yelling at each other over the table and arguing about things constantly and if you want to participate in that environment you better be able to you know if you want to be at the grown up table you better be able to argue with the grown ups about whatever it is that they're talking about so uh i think that helped a lot uh and also probably just being a nerd and you know if if you can't if you can't excel in the areas where, where nerds tend not to excel, at least maybe you can argue them into the ground. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm just I'm I'm pulling for anything here, but uh, that that I think explains it. Mostly mostly innate and then combined with the environment.
1: Kevin Connor, Connor K. Do you invert your ver- your vertical look axis and do you have strong feelings about customized controls in general?
0: Uh, FPS or third person?
1: Uh, he doesn't say, but I'm going to
0: assume uh, FPS. He's in the chat room, so and he should be paying attention. So we should well, it's his question, I hope. Right, so, did. so FPS, uh, no invert. I don't understand how people do inverted Y in a first-person game. It's crazy to me. Connor K I, says both. Yeah, I suppose <laughs> you could, It's kind of like reverse scrolling in line. Like you could probably get used to it. It's definitely one of those things that will flip on you. Uh, but it doesn't mean it's not crazy. Like a good example, I've recently been. Telling my son about this to try to teach him about the wonders of the human mind. But, like, you know, those, uh, I was telling him that the image on the back of his, his retina is displayed upside down because of the lens in his eye, uh, but it doesn't look upside down to you as your brain, you know, just interprets it the right way, right? Yeah. Uh, so they have glasses that you can put on in front of your eyes, like goggles or whatever. They will flip everything around again. So everything looks upside down to you. And you put them on, you're like, oh, how am I going to walk around with these glasses? The ceiling's on the floor, the floor's on the ceiling, everything's upside down. It's crazy. But if you walk around with them for a day, your brain will adjust and everything will look fine. So wait a, minute, take, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying that everything will look
1: right side up again to you or
0: yeah, your brain will adjust and it will look normal to you. It's kind of like when you put on like ski goggles and everything's yellow for a little while, but then eventually it just looks normal. And then we you take them off. Everything looks weird. So if you put on glasses that flip, that vertically flip everything that you see, you will bump into things for a little while, but after about a day, you'll be used to it if you don't take them off and your brain will basically adjust. Uh, what was, the, what was the, oh, so the inverted Y axis. So the, the inverted scrolling and inverted axes are similar, like even lesser cases of this where you would get used to it. But no, I do not like inverted Y. in third person, this drives me nuts because I can never remember what the hell my preferences are. So like examples are in like Myth, the bungee game where you had camera control and you would swivel, you would swivel, orbit your camera around your, your men or even things like, you know, just like Journey or something where it's a third person camera. There is a way that my brain works best in terms of like, what do you do if you want the camera to rotate counterclockwise around the thing that you're looking at? Do you press to the left or do you press to the right? And I can never remember which one I like best, except I have this mild discomfort when it's the wrong one and then I invert it and go, oh, oh no, that's much better. You know, Mario 64 is another example. Or Mario Sunshine is a good example. And they had the, the C-Stick free look. Uh, the the default controls in Mario Sunshine for the camera controls, I think, are the ones that I like. I can never remember, you know. Uh, the, the thing about third person is like, when I want the camera to look up at the sky, do I pull back like I'm, like I'm driving a plane looking up at the sky or do I push forward? Uh, and that one, I can never, like I said, I can never remember what my preferences are. And I also can't even remember what they consider inverted or not. But FPS is clear cut for me. Uh, no, no inverted Y.
1: Okay. Oh, here's a neat one. Um, actually, let me do our final sponsor, Squarespace.com, everything you need to make an amazing website. Fully hosted, completely managed environment for creating, and maintaining a beautiful website, a blog, a portfolio, pictures, whatever it is you want to do, you can do it. doesn't matter if you're experienced building sites or not. If you are, you can use SFTP to update the templates. You can, that's by switching into this developer mode they have. You can use Git to check out the templates and control everything. All the HTML, all the JavaScript, all the CSS. But what if you're not? What if you don't care? Well, then you can use their layout engine, which is all drag and drop. And just click to configure stuff. You build the site and build the pages exactly the way you want. You pick one of their templates. It's got responsive design. It looks great on every device. It's pretty amazing. You can check these guys out at squarespace.com. If you sign up for a year, you get 20% off. Two years, you get 25% off and a free domain name comes with those. Or you can just do month to month. I mean, this isn't something free. You pay for it. It's it's supported software. It's 10 bucks a month. And you can learn more by going to squarespace.com slash five by five. You start the trial. And when you do, you enter Dan sent me twelve. That'll give you an additional ten percent off everything that you do there. Think you'll love these guys. You don't have to worry about scaling or hosting or any of that nonsense. Check them out. Squarespace.com slash five by five. Thanks very much to them for making this show possible. Blue Imagination asks, what is your favorite specific? Model Apple device of all time. It can be a computer, a phone, a tablet, etc.
0: That's easy. I actually already answered that in the uh, when MacWorld magazine had its 25th anniversary of the Mac issue. They solicited feedback from various uh, current day Mac pundit people, whatever, right. including me and John Gruber and a bunch of other people. Yeah. Uh, and I think three of us, pro- three of us, of similar ages pick the very same best Mac of all time and that is and continues to be my favorite thing that Apple has ever made that's the Mac SE30 which most people listening to the show probably don't know what it is but if you want to uh like there are space limitations in Macworld so I can only write like 200 words about it but I could have written like 3,000 uh I'll try to find the link for the show notes to that particular story on Macworld's new website things are a little bit moved around but the gist of it is that uh, the Macintosh originally was that little computer that uh, most people should know what it looks like. It's like a little vertical thing with a little nine-inch CRT stuck in the front of it and a yeah. floppy drive in the front. It looks kind of like a mouth. It looks like a little person. <laughs> if you ever seen the Banana Junior from Bloom County, that's what it's based on. <laughs> uh, that's what a, that's what the Mac was in the beginning. And then they came with the Mac Plus and the Mac SE, all same form factor, different details about the Surface features, but more or less the vertical little thing. Uh, and then the Mac 2 came out and it was more like a PC slab type thing. And then Mac started varying from that point on. But to the Mac from the beginning was that vertical thing. Uh, and the Mac SE30 was basically a Mac 2X, which is the big, powerful machine, shoved into the little, the big, powerful color machine, shoved into the little original black and white kind of case, like that form factor. And so it was small and looked like an original Mac, but had the internals of what was then Apple's fastest computer you could buy. Uh, and that was kind of like, I think the analogy I use in the Mac World thing was like, you know, uh, putting a Ferrari V8 engine into, into a Honda Civic. Like it was this little compact little package that a regular person could afford, kind of. It was like 4,300 bucks in like 1987. So, wow. okay, maybe not, you know. Some it was, very few people could right. afford it. It was still less than the, the Mac 2X because that you had to buy a monitor with too. And the monitor was like 800 bucks or some crazy thing, you know. So, it, in a small package that I could fit on my desk right on top of my stack of existing hard drives, it would fit you know, exactly the same footprint. But inside that was like, you know, a speed demon engine. And, and uh, like I think I said in the Mac World thing, this was back in the age when. Every new computer that Apple came out with was better than all of its previous computers in every possible way. So like when the, the next computer came out, the old computer had mono sound, this one had stereo. The old computer had this much RAM, this one had more. The old computer had, had this much hard drive space, this one had more. The old computer had this speed of CPU, this one was faster. Every single part of it was better. Like there was no like, oh here's a new model and it's like, you know, when when a new Mac Mini would come out back when the Mac Pro was being updated, you didn't expect the brand new Mac Mini to be faster than the modern-day Mac Pro in, like, you know, 2007, let's say, when the Mac Pros were still being updated, right? Of course, Apple's, you know, the new Mac Mini is not going to be faster than last year's Mac Pro because they have a segmented product line. But this was very early in the beginning of Apple. Every single new Mac was the best Mac there ever was. And so the, the SE30 was, like, the last of that line where it was like, this is better than the Mac SE and the Mac Plus Uh, And and even better than the Mac 2, which was that big, gargantuan, you know, PC-looking thing that you had to buy a separate monitor for. Uh, You could even put a 24-bit color card into the thing, which I did. Uh, So (laughs) that was the end of the line for that. And it was also the best original form factor Mac they ever made. Uh, There's even things like the Mac Classic and stuff. That was back in the the age when it's like, all right, well, here's the Mac Classic. And it's not as good as the modern Macs. But if you want some dorky little thing that looks like the old Mac, you can have it. Like, that was totally... Not what we're talking about. This was a high prestige, high class, best in class in every possible way. Awesome machine. Uh, and it was the end of that line and it was the best original form factor Mac. And so that's why it's my favorite. And I, I had that computer for years. Like I had it, I, that was my computer when I graduated college in, in 1997. A Mac SE30 with a 24-bit color card and a color monitor. It tells you how long that thing lasted and yeah. we bought it when it was new. Let me find it. How many more of these do you want? Uh, you can you can cut it off. You can pick how long you want the show to go. It seems like you have an unlimited supply. Uh, if someone in the chat room asked me uh, pancetta or prosciutto in, in my carbonara. I've done all sorts of kind, but my wife likes best a good old-fashioned American bacon, and so that's <laughs> what I make most of the time in my carbonara. As sacrilegious as that may be. I I would definitely pick uh, pancetta or prosciutto, though, for whatever that's work. And, and guanciale, hard to find, uh, and usually more expensive uh, than pancetta.
1: Okay. Uh, let's see. If I don't do too many of these. People get angry at me because if, if I, if you, by you saying that it's my choice then people get angry. So let me see. Oh man, how technical. I don't want to get too technical on these. I want, I'm trying to pick the ones that are about you, about the man,
0: the man. So this is this is the other part of the show is that Dan, you can submit all the questions, but Dan is the arbiter of them. So if he ha- you obviously have a theme in mind for the questions you're selecting, and that's just what the listeners have to accept. Oh, someone keeps asking about my wallet. Uh, it's it's not a Costanza wallet. <laughs> it's not super slim either. It's maybe like an inch thick, less than an inch. It's a trifold. Uh, it's not that big. I do put it in my front pocket, not my back, though, because I think if I put it in my back pocket, I would get the Costanza spine. Who puts their wallet in their back pocket these days? You, you, your wallet's in front pocket, right? Uh it depends, actually. Really? You like you put it in your back pocket when you know you're going to be sitting down at some point. No,
1: not if I'm going to be sitting down. I might actually take it take it out completely.
0: So you're, but you're from the Northeast, aren't you? People, it's easier to pickpocket out of your back
1: pocket. Yeah. So I, if I'm out somewhere, it goes in the front pocket.
0: Then you could feel that it's there, yeah, If yeah. someone sticks their hand in your front pocket. You're more likely to feel <laughs> it. You might notice. Forget. It's, it's too much butt fat. You won't you won't feel the lift
1: <laughs> you won't feel the lift all right um i don't know i feel like we should stop i feel like we should stop i feel like this was really good and the rest of them they're starting to get mired in in really specific little details and and things okay. like that
0: god forbid we get mired in details yeah
1: omission. yeah um last one <laughs> michael steber asks have you finished those errands yet uh pass okay um will uh brian powell will john ever admit that using a, to- a toaster for to- a toaster oven for toasting bread and bagels is a bad idea
0: what do you mean will i admit i had a whole show about it i know i'm I had a just the, I don't- I had a whole big preface on the show and said, yes if you if you it's easier to get fast toasting even toasting from a slot toaster but i don't want a slot toaster because i use it for oven like things and so I, and I don't have room for both so you don't have room for both you need to use it for oven like things i wanted a toaster oven that worked It's not like admitting a slot toaster is, but I said it on the show. Go back and listen. All right. Uh, Clark Goble, what do you see
1: the future of iCloud being given? Uh, There are still, wait, okay, let me, this is a little bit. Second attempt. What do you see the future of iCloud being? Given Um, there are still huge problems, I'm editing this as I go, with Doc and core data syncing after two years.
0: The future? I think they'll keep plugging away at it. Uh, I think iCloud is, probably the last embarrassing rename because it has passed some threshold probably past some threshold like you know that again getting back to northeast stuff what was it was it bell atlantic uh there was there was Mob bell and then there was bell atlantic which would name one of the smaller things when they broke up at t uh I forget what Bell Atlantic changed to, but like phone companies back then and still to this day kept changing their name because the old phone company would have such an incredibly terrible reputation because everyone hated Bell Atlantic and they changed it whatever they changed it to. Like that's how things like Verizon and singular came to exist because those are new names for old things where they had to keep changing the name over and over again because people just hated them with a passion. And then, you know, now people hate like AT&T or Verizon or whatever. And maybe those companies have to change their names too. That is like, you don't want to be in that cycle. And Apple was in that cycle with its online services. Nobody was, you know, I guess iTools So it's free, whatever, you know, fine. Dot Mac did not have a good reputation. Mobile me did not have a good reputation. So they had to keep changing the name to say, no, 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 seriously, it's going to be good this time. And to prove it, Oh, Bell Atlantic and nine X. Yeah. Nine X was another one at uh, GTE. Yeah. Someone in the chat room says Bell Atlantic plus nine X plus GTE equals what is now Verizon. Uh, but anyway, you don't want oh, Comcast and Xfinity. Ugh, yeah. It's Comcastic. Uh, So for iCloud, (laughs) I'm hoping this is the last big rename, that iCloud passes some minimum threshold for non-suckitude that they can just simply improve iCloud. And it needs to be improved, and we all know what the problems are. Uh, The the problem with Apple secrecy is they never, beyond saying that now the cloud is the center instead of the digital hub, they never articulate their philosophy of like, we have to just kind of tea leaf read of like, Why is it that each application gets its own container? Well, I guess it's simpler, but then how are they going to share data? Well, they think sharing is not that important. You can do everything in the apps or maybe email. Like we're just trying to figure out what is it that you think you're doing? And part of it is like imagining that there's some master plan where maybe there isn't. And the other part of it is just maybe their plan is stupid and doesn't doesn't reflect the needs of their customers. But uh, I think they'll keep plugging away at it. I, I think that even within the current broken paradigm of these little independent silos and everything, they can't even get that to work, right? Like get that to be reliable, fast, predictable, and maybe then or maybe in parallel also worry about what you're going to do. But boring stuff like implementation competence is does it perform well? Does it do what you say it's going to do? Even if what you say it's going to do is stupid, you have to at least, you know, get competent because then what happens if you come up with a grand new plan? Oh, no, wait, guys, I have a way to do it. That's simple. And let's allow sharing and is is multifamily, multi-person fa- uh, savvy within a family. And it's just great if you can't get it to work, it doesn't matter if your idea is better. So I think they need to focus on execution and also come up with a better idea. And I think they will keep plugging away at it because iCloud does, is so much better than mobile me and all those other things. Yeah. It's more on the right track. So that's all right, what I, I, I think I have this one last question.
1: All right. Bill Keller in the chat room asked, uh, and maybe you answered this one in there, but he asked that uh, you didn't answer it here. Um, we talked about Pearl and things like that before. What, type of programming projects do you work on in your day job paint a paint and this is my elaboration paint a picture of what a day a work day in the life of uh, of john syracuse is like we can end on that
0: what kind i don't that's something known that as i don't talk about my work on the show because i don't want this to be a show about my work because that would be like back to work and we already have that show <laughs> uh but suffice it to say that my day is the typical day of a backend web developer i do stuff with Perl that talks to databases and uh you know client side stuff with html javascript and css and you know all the all the typical things that you would expect to do and depending on what project i'm on maybe i'm doing stuff that's totally away from the client i not doing anything having to do with the browser maybe it's completely faceless jobs in the background that you know talk to the file system and the database or maybe i'm doing stuff that's all front end and it's just tweaking a user interface and connecting it up to some existing functionality or maybe it's just css and javascript tweaks and everything in between uh day to day it depends on the project depends on what you're doing but that's that's basically it just the typical day of a working program where i interact with the bug tracking system and source control and text editors like it's it's not it's not rocket science it's pretty much what it is it's a typical developer type of uh environment Hope that answers the question. I Most hope of so answers too. are boring. Because I don't think so. I think this is exactly what people want to hear. And maybe you don't. Maybe people don't know. Like, if you're not a developer, maybe it is mysterious what you do. But like, if you are a developer, it becomes not mysterious very quickly. <laughs> like, yeah, you're just you're part. just a guy. You're writing code. You're yeah, not like gonna... I, I think I guess I can remember when you're a novice. You're like I remember when I was when I was uh, starting out. It was like version control was mysterious to me. Like because yeah. if you, you know if you're just starting out as a programmer, you're you're you know. 15-year-old kid by yourself or whatever, like, why would you have version control? Like, <laughs> I hear tales of CVS. Did you hear about this? It's the way to, you know, do version control. And you're like, oh, but I don't know that. How am I ever going to be a working programmer? I don't understand CVS. And, you know, three jobs in, you realize what pain in the butt version control is and yeah. how it doesn't matter which version control system you're using, you're going to hate it. And, yeah, it becomes just part of the job. Uh, and you don't worry about it, but.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, I, I'm going to say that's it. I, but next week, we'll have a regular... A regular style episode
0: or i'll make you interview me. oh remember i told you this doesn't count as you interviewing me this is all readers yeah these are all readers listen, questions listener listeners asking the question if i can't come up with the topic or if i think that is the topic to do is to have you interview me you still have to be ready at any time a <laughs> moment's notice you can call be called at 2 a.m and say dan wake up it's time to interview <laughs> i'll be ready yeah
1: i I'm would say, i mean my your show but I, my suggestion would be that be the final final episode. but I, I mean already you know,
0: told you I know what the final episode is going to be and that is not it. That is
1: not it. All right. So I've got, two, there's two potential shows, 99, 98 99, that I could potentially be called upon. So I Or would, not. Or not. Or not, but I'm ready either way. Okay. So if people would like to follow you on Twitter, Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. There's no Z. And uh, you are on uh, Syracusa on Alpha. And you've got, Syri- uh, just for you, Syracusa.tent.com. .is. And uh, that's everything, right? I think so. Hypercritical.co. They want to read your your uh, three blog posts, three blog posts per day that you're doing per year. And five by hypercritical slash 97 has a, some links and notes that John and I have added for you guys to read. So go check it out. Uh, it's not too late to review or rate this show. So, go do that on iTunes if you'd like. Uh, I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter and here. And that's it. Have a good one. Do,
0: Dan.